was Clenched Fists, Guns, and Roaches, which came out on This Is Hardcore Records, the only 7-inch I ever put out. This is Hardcore Podcast. Our guest tonight is Juicy Joel, singer of Clenched Fist, but more importantly that, one of my best friends in the entire world. Someone who, through contacting for playing a show in Memphis in 2001, opened his door legitimately. He was at work. He sent an email. I'll be at work. There's a key under the mat. Let yourselves in. From the first conversations we had with him through the first show we played in Memphis, we clicked and became friends overnight. In fact, I think we stayed up, the entire band and everybody hanging out till like 4 in the morning, watching old hardcore VHSs, and nerding out about Biohazard, Marauder, and every hardcore band that we both loved. Juice is a very special person, not only to me, but just in the way that he transformed his life. From just being a hardcore band guy, he immediately changed directions, taught himself not only how to program websites and design them, but also how to write code and the evolution of what he taught himself and the ingenuity in which he learned all his skills has given him the ability to be a very successful freelancer with a solid business model. And this conversation isn't just about waxing nostalgically on what he did with Clench Wrist, but it's also a great lesson for so many people on how to teach themselves and gain skills without having to go to college what it takes to be a motivated, self-employed freelancer. Uh, As we talk about in the podcast, Juice has been working remote long before COVID, and he has a lot of tips on that. And in one of the many times that he and I get together and just laugh about this stuff, this is the first time that we've ever recorded anything. And we tell quite a few funny behind-the-scenes stories from This Is Hardcore. Before we get into that, I wanted to bring something up. In this episode, we tell a story about the Marauder drummer from 2010. And one way to 
listen to it is to think that oh, these guys are being dicks and they're making fun of somebody who was going through a fucked up time. And all I can tell you is that the universe works in very mysterious ways. The week, this week, as I'm editing this podcast and getting it ready to air, that person actually reached out and said that he feels bad about what took place. He feels embarrassed and he apologized and it was very fucked up because it's a great story for us. We had a great time telling it. People who were there laughed about it. It's 10 years old, so maybe some of you will be hearing this for the first time, but by no means are we making fun of this person directly and one of the great things about this story is that he has bounced back. He's got his life together. And he has a new project, and he's working on music. And I absolutely think it's fantastic that you can get to the very bottom. You know, this is the real bottom. I like, oh, I was bummed for a couple weeks. Like, went through nine years of some hard shit, and Hardcore got him through. He's bouncing back, and I really look forward to seeing what he does. And I hope that when he listens, he laughs and doesn't take this as a slight because really we're just like retelling one of the most absurd and crazy weekends of our lives. Going into this episode, I knew that Juice is one of the few people that has a story that goes beyond just being a band person. And I didn't know how to really get to it because he moved from Philadelphia before we COVID thing started. And it was just because of our brother Cracker's daughter's wedding. Juice had come up and... This is only the second time I've done a podcast in person. The first being another one of my closest friends, Chris Spear. There's still some audio things I need to learn about making sure one of the channels doesn't pick up some of the other sound. But this is probably the podcast where I've laughed the most in the podcast and listening to it. I hope that you have the ability to pay attention through all this because there's a lot of great lessons and Juice is one of my favorite people on earth. So let's roll. I'm very excited to have Juice on the show. For those of you that don't know, Juicy Joel, Joel Murphy, is not only the person who brought us the This Is Hardcore Fest website, and the This Is Hardcore Graphics, and our podcast things as a web designer and graphic designer. Juice is also one of my very best and longest friends in hardcore. And he is now uh, our second guest where we had me in the same room. And uh, I'm excited for this one. Juice, thanks for coming on. Appreciate you having me. Now, we're going to go through some of the clench fist stuff early, but obviously there's much more to your story. And um, I know you and I know your brother, but let me tell everybody the first record that you bought that you think was like the beginning of your whole hardcore life? Um, well, I didn't buy it. My first hardcore record that like, you know, blew my mind and changed everything was set it off by Madball. So I had found Biohazard like 92, 93 or so. And I came from metal as you did, you know, Testament, Slayer, that kind of stuff. And I knew Biohazard, like, wasn't metal metal. 
and I knew it was something different, but I didn't really know. Like, I kind of put, really put my finger on it. So I was really into them. I went to a biohazard show. Some dude uh, where I grew up Memphis used to have a naval base, and this dude, this skinhead guy, I got to talk to him at the show. He's like, oh, you like biohazard? You should check out Sick of It All. I was like, okay. I went home and listened to Sick of It All, and be honest with you, I really wasn't that into it. It was like regular guy, hardcore. And uh, so there used to be the magazine Metal Maniacs. And you remember they used to have the classified ads in the back for tape trades. Like, oh, I'm looking for this. I have this. We can trade. So Biohazard had a demo that came out before their first record. And I was like, I really want to hear this demo. So there was a dude in Staten Island, New York, who... I don't know, had one of these ads in there, or I did, saying I wanted the Biohazard demo, I forget, but I got in contact with the dude, and he sent me two tapes, the Biohazard demo, which I listened to, like, oh, this is weird, crazy, blah, 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 and the other tape had the Marauder demo with Minus, the 25 to Life demo, the Bulldoze demo, and on the whole other side was Madball set it off, and... I had been seeing ads for the record. I'm like, ah, these guys are like crazy looking, but like different than metal. I didn't really get it. And I put on the song, set it off. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's like slow thrash metal, but you know, didn't really like peel my wig back. And then lockdown came on. And I was like, what the fuck is this? This is like fast punk rock. And I didn't like punk rock and I still hate punk rock. So it was like a little weird. And man, I don't know what it was. When he said, just go, go fuck yourself, I didn't know what he was talking about, but I was like, whatever that feeling is, that's what I feel. And that's when I was like, I don't like metal anymore. I shave my head, make my brother shave his head. Like, <laughs> and that was it. That, that, that was the moment. Once again, for those of you who haven't picked up, Joel is a man of the South. You got to walk us through a little bit of what it was like going to the transition from metalhead to newfound somehow hardcore person and how you found hardcore even in Memphis? Well, unbeknownst to me, there was a pretty thriving scene in Memphis before my time. There's a There was a band called Raid that was like pre-Earth Crisis, vegan, hardline band. Victory re-released their demo or their 7-inch and their record and you know, they had shows a few years prior to me knowing what all this stuff was. And, you know, I, I didn't know how to connect any of that shit, right? So, like, I got into metal because I was always looking for the most extreme thing that matched how I felt in the world. And so I would get, like, oh, obituary. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, And that would get boring because it was just, like, heavy but i don't know something missing and it really was like back in the day with those metal magazines they would put like three words about hardcore in there every now and again and that was just like i i don't know what it was i was just like i don't get it what's hardcore like why do these guys not have long hair they still look cool and they're kind of scary but like it's not metal what is it and it just was like i don't know kind of like spelunking through a cave and you're like what the fuck's that shiny thing over there and you go and grab it and it's like oh this is a diamond that's what it's at, that's how it happened and uh i kind of 
dis- well, not kind of, I did. I discovered hardcore completely separate of anything that was going on locally. What I quickly found out was that everything locally around me at the time was very political. And I didn't care about politics. I just wanted to be mad at the world in a general sense. And they were very specific with punk rock politics. And if you weren't down with that, then they didn't like you. And they were very, very unwelcoming. And basically told me and the couple friends I had, like, you're not part of our scene. So, okay. I'm still this way to this day. Tell me I I can't do something. I'll do it anyway. And so I kind of built my own thing. When you say built your own thing, you mean starting Clench Fist up and trying to bring bands to town? I'm telling I'm telling you that I met my friends that were weird, white trash, fuck up losers, you know, like me, and said, shave your heads, here are the bands to listen to, here's this crazy weirdo in New York, Rick to Life, you can, order, you can order all your, you know, finest hardcore clothing from this guy, you'll get the wrong stuff, but it'll get there eventually. I basically was like, this is how it is. Like, this is what we do. This is, you know, uh, the bands we listen to. And a couple of them were into it. And a couple of them just like fighting people. And so they, you know, shaved their heads and came to the shows. But I, I created the whole thing around the band and my friends separate from, like, His Hero is Gone is a band from, those guys went on to start Tragedy and, um, they had their world, and then I had my little, you know, fledgling scene. Then there wasn't really a lot of crossover between the two. Only a couple of those guys were nice to us, and the rest of them weren't. This is not the first person to discuss the mid-90s separations of scenes, so I'm glad that you've added your little touch to this. Yeah, I mean, it, at times it could be totally separate. Like, not like the way it is now where you have a core scene like, say, Philly, and then like 45 minutes away from the city they have their own scene. It really isn't like, wasn't like that back in the day. You could have two separate scenes in the same exact place, almost in the same club sometimes. Um, and it would be split like in two halves kind of, sometimes three depending on the, you know, the setup. Partially what is going to be touched on a lot in a little bit, I want you to set up right now. When the band and all that began, how were you finding out how to do this stuff since you were kind of like separate from the other side and kind of stranded away from like the giant metropolises of hardcore? Well, <clears throat> I don't know. I guess I'm all, I've always just been the kind of person that like, if there was a thing that I just felt moved to do, and I mean move, like I had to do it. Like it wasn't like, oh, I think this is neat. I want to explore. It's like, no, no, no. This is like, I have to do this. And so I, I, I just would, knowing me now, you know, you know me well, like half my life, you know, I'm not outgoing at, at all. But I was so driven to do this. I would do shit then that I would never do now. And so we were like, okay, I started this band. We want to play a show. How do we play a show? Well, you know, you would go to your friend who also went to shows. and how do I get on a show? But none of those guys wanted us to play their shows. So how the fuck do we get a show? So there was this uh, guitar shop called Musitron, and they had a battle of the bands. So we walked in there as a band into a retail store, and we're like, hey, we're a band, and we want to play your, your fucking battle of the bands. 
which sounds so stupid, but we didn't know. Like, I would never do that now. You know, I would do so much investigation prior, but it was just like, well, no, we just got to go there Saturday and walk in. And so we did that. We played this stupid battle of bands, had nothing to do with hardcore. We didn't know. But that that got us at least playing. You know, we were playing like the local thousand capacity rock club with like nobody there. Um, and this kind of segues to something that's like a couple of years past this point, but you mentioned to me was when we played with three, six mafia, it was because we were playing these non hardcore shows. So we were on one of these, these stupid rock rock. I mean like not Van Halen, not anything good, like bullshit, local garbage, you know, kind of like pre new metal stuff, you know, guys that would eventually go on to play that kind of shit. So we were on one of those shows and they were like, Hey, three, six mafia wants the date, but they said that we can keep a couple of the bands. Do you guys want to do it? And we're like, of course we'd want to do it. And now it's like kids come to me, stop me. Like, did you guys really play with three, six mafia? And they think there was all this synergy between hardcore and, and rap music. It was just, we were stupid and didn't know how to play this, uh, hardcore shows. So we accidentally found ourselves playing on this show that people ask me about 25 years later. So how did I do it? Kind of like just determination and like luck and just stupid, you know, happy accidents, I guess. There's house parties. There's house shows. You're the first person to talk about a battle of bands. But what I get from it is like the kind of like that, the where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. Water always finds a way. Like these kind of... uh these sayings hold true because obviously at some point you guys were determined and eventually you guys would start traveling outside. And again, a lot of what people do in hardcore now is to sign on to social media and you just at or just write into the abyss and the questions come. But uh, you're kind of socially distanced by a thousand miles or more to like the next big East Coast hardcore city. How are you guys finding a way to play beyond Memphis? And like what stuff are you using to... uh? look for opportunities uh well i guess um so i i really try to think about this recently because you've been talking about rick to life on the the podcast some and like rick to life had a huge hand in me personally being able to hear bands is what like younger people have to realize is like there really was no way to hear certain bands because most bands did not have cds and if you didn't have a cd there wasn't no way in hell that that was coming down my way to be discoverable and so anyway i was thinking about how did i find rick to life and i honestly don't know but i would write letters to him and i literally would give him a a double-sided notebook piece of paper with 30 40 bands that i wanted to know what they sounded like that's what it was back in those days you know, this band sounds like this band and this other band mixed together. And he literally wrote out every single band. Like, what does Fury of Five sound like? Like, what does SFA sound like? What does Yuppicide sound like? And he literally wrote the description for every band and mailed it back to me. And so I got to become, you know, I guess pen pals is what you call it. You know, we didn't talk on the phone. It was too expensive to talk on the phone. And so when I had a demo of my band that we recorded ourselves again like there was like we didn't know how to go to a goddamn studio and do anything we literally our drummer tits yes that's what we called him uh 
he worked in a guitar shop and he borrowed a four track recorder. And so we went to his house and we recorded a demo and that felt like, holy shit, like we've done it. Like we've, we've, we've made a recording. I send it to Rick and he's like, send me more. And I'm like, okay. And then I guess at some point he started dubbing them himself himself. And you know, a lot of people, a lot of bands had problem with that. Eventually I didn't care. Cause I'm just an idiot from the middle of nowhere. Like the more copies he makes, the more people know the band. So it really started that way where like he would somehow get our demo out there and like these zines would pick it up and people would, you know, write to me. And honestly, some weirdos would call me like a couple of people. I, you know, that's why I had to get caller ID back in the day. There's really crazy people would get in contact with you. But through that kind of activity, um, I guess the first time we came up to the East Coast was uh, Jamie from Hatebreed um, put us on some shows. So we drove from Memphis to, um, I think, the home base in Wilkes Bar, PA, which is like 15 hours or something crazy like that. And we played, uh, it's crazy to think about now, but it was like, Madball, Cold as Life, All at War, Shut Down, Strength for a Reason, My Band, um, something else. And that weekend, we followed around Cold as Life. Like, they're these older, crazy maniacs that are 10 years older than we are. And, like, they just took a liking to us. I don't know. They just were nice to us. They And, and people looked at them thought they were scary and they were but they were like hey man you guys just follow us around we'll go in the store and get you guys beer for you and all that kind of stuff and like kind of took us under their wing and then that weekend we stayed with cj and aaron from death threat um you know met people like that and it was just it was just kind of like i don't know if anyone ever thought like oh god look at these guys they're kind of jerk offs like i feel bad for them let me help them i don't know maybe they thought that or maybe they were just like oh they're cool so we'll help them but whatever the reason they just sort of showed us the way and then when i met you and we could tell that kind of unusual story it was like right off the bat like you were like oh you want to go here write down this name oh you want to go there blah, 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 blah. and it was like and when i was listening to the episode with chris from dysphoria i was like okay that's how joe knew to tell me that guy to call that dude because he went there first and it was like so that's kind of just sort of snowball like meeting people literally meeting people uh was the way no social media or, or anything barely any phone calls or just literally like letters and then meeting in person you touched on so much stuff that was either covered in episodes or will be covered, especially in the topic of will be covered. Richie and I are going to go through Rich of Life, and yeah. uh, we mentioned it on the podcast, but there will be an episode where we show some of the benefits of what this now legendary asshole, <laughs> or wherever, <laughs> however you fucking feel about him. I look at him as somebody who has two sides, and there's two stories to tell, and Juice kind of highlighted some of what we want to do, which is, here's a band from Memphis. Here's some tapes. This is exactly what Richie said. Next yeah. thing you know, these tapes are going all over. And, you know, Rich is, Rich is right with the European stuff. And also, you know, like Rick was in somehow able, like an idiot savant, to figure out a way to have a, like a correspondence with people in Europe, Japan, Texas, like mm -hmm. all these unreachable places. Like 
he was kind of a hub in himself. And he was wanted, kind of the internet before the internet. Well, exactly what I was getting to. It was like all things went to Rick. And then so many people were kind of disseminated from what he was interacting with. And so this is one of the positives of, of someone like that is that bands get linked up. Like you got linked up with Jamie from Hatebreed. Yeah. At that time, Hatebreed through Jamie, which would be a great podcast, just to talk to Jamie about the man of hustle and DIY stuff that he was active with before obviously Hatebreed really, really took off. But that's like the way the hardcore spirit is. And like, uh, you mentioned the same thing I said about Coldest Life. Like, they're like full ass beard dudes. <laughs> yeah, they were men. Yeah, like, sure, grown men. Like, yeah. What's crazy is Jeff, like, cut down trees. So it's like really like a true, like, goon meets lumberjack. And, but yeah, man, like, they were some of the coolest dudes. And they were the kind of guys that fostered, like, saying they were punishment. You know, uh, another thing you said, which cracked me up, but I tried not to laugh, and was just like, we recorded on a four track. Yeah. And that's 100% what Punishment did with the de- our first demo was we recorded on a four track. Now, I want to explain what a four track is. There may be people that, that are young and don't understand this. Like, it literally was a machine. You stuck a cassette tape in and you had four inputs. So you could record a guitar, a bass, a vocal, and then a single mic for an entire drum kit. And that's it. Like, there was no, like, it didn't have faders for mixing or any of that shit. Like, it, yeah. It's pretty rudimentary. It's a different era, and and it also it's awesome to hear that you benefited from Chris's work in uh, the regard to getting away, uh, which is the same thing our whole thing was. Now, on the other side of the equation was a band from Philadelphia who was still trying to tour and get their names out, and at some point through Mike Hoods, because CF was connected through Mikey Hoods, through um, obviously the Rick, to called his life. You guys were on. Yeah, Mike gonna- Hood was was the West Coast Rick to life. Like he was, he was that dude that could tell you like who was who in certain places or could facilitate you playing a show in front of people that wanted to see your band or help you get on a comp or, or whatever. Like he was that dude. Through Mike Hood giving us some contacts because the Hoods was really like, Rich Delight would stick mostly to East Coast shows, maybe a West Coast tour. But I mean, Mikey Hood had contacts for so many promoters and uh, a lot of bands benefit from that. So Punishment gets a shot through email with Juice, come down and play, clench fist. We were on tour with Masura from Virginia Beach, but then um, for whatever purpose or reason, they didn't hit that show or something like that. Yeah, I don't remember what that was. Joe in the email, because you know, you got to send all the information for the day sheet. He said, here's hey, I want to interject for a second. When he says email, he means literally going to the library in whatever town they're in. And while, you know, the other guys in the band are looking up porn on the library computers, Joe's typing out email to people like me trying to get a show. That's actually really important because I didn't mention that. Like, Chris, it's kind of touched that we were in a library playing around, but like before the world of Wi-Fi and, and these phones we have, it really was being resourceful and like getting into the public library or, you know, because who the hell wants to pay like whatever money it was for Kinko's at the time to get online. Mm-hmm. I probably was even talking to him AOL or something like that. But Juice was like, hey, I'll be at work, keys under the mat, help yourself out. You know, this is like the trust and the uh, immediate like, hey, he was referred to me by Mike and vice versa. I don't have anything to worry about. That's the openness of the other half of the equation that came from that time frame was promoters putting bands up, letting them stay at the house. And in Juice's case, like, hey, just welcome and, you know, come on in. Yeah. So I get home that day and uh, there's a bunch of crazy people from Philly in my living room. And uh, I don't think I ever told you this, but you had that. You had long blonde hair at the time. 
and you wore this uh, headband that said soccer on it. It held your hair back. I walked in. I was like, that is the ugliest fucking girl I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And then, because I was like, I don't, like, you understand, you didn't know what people looked like back then. I had heard Joe's name, Joe Harker from Philly, Punishment, blah, 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 but I don't know what the fuck he looks like. I walk in, like, God damn. And then you start talking, and, and you're like, I was like, I knew. Okay, that's Joe right there. And liter- I mean, literally, within five minutes, uh, fucking ballpoint pen and notebook. Like, okay, you guys want to tour here? Okay, here's a dude from Seed's number. Uh, you want to go here and blah, blah, blah. It's literally all the same names. Chris from Dysphoria rattled off on, on the podcast. All the same shit. So it was like, you know, hand-me-down info. And, and, and that took us out. And, you know, we toured off that stuff. That's a huge impactful thing that uh happens with different bands as you relate to each other and then you want to help each other and you literally were like sharing the, you know tips of the trade so to speak in contacts and i know that probably still to some degree may work but like it's like a little like handwritten like crib notes like here's the secret i think i still have that shit honestly because it's that's how valuable it was to me like that you were able to kind of like I don't know, like open the door. Like I'm, I'm like scratching outside of the door like a dog for so long. And it's like, you know, people telling me to fuck off or, or whatever, you know, and you were just like, all right, well, here, here you go. I open the door. You want to come in to the party? And, and that was, that was key. There was a certain band specifically who at that time frame were doing it like we were, you know, there's not the big hardcore record label being like, man, we got to get punishment clenched fists out there. We were lucky that we were dealing with like too damn hype and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. there wasn't a world for us in that time. And I know that you had always kind of been like, I love doing hardcore, but you were never like, like a Mike Hood who was like legit, like living off of his band. No, I mean, there was no way for me to do that. Like, you know, the band was never at any single moment for even a second financially sound i mean you know that cold as life weekend that dude bob that booked at uh home base took me aside to pay pay me after that show and he said uh bob mac bob mac yeah right and he's like man uh so i want to settle up with you takes me behind this door and he's like man all i got is a hundred bucks i was like a hundred dollars and he thought i was pissed and he was he was like yeah man i'm sorry i was like that's fucking great what are you fucking kidding me a hundred dollars that i mean that blew my mind i mean we were literally play shows we, we like we played in new orleans at a movie theater one time and we got paid with a ten dollar bill that's still so cool a <laughs> hundred bucks is ten times more than you know it could have been and so like yeah i mean it, it was just crazy and so there was there was no money and playing in uh hardcore at all for me at all clenchers would go on to play a bunch of shows and you know as as you said like it would become regular traveling for them yeah but bands being what bands do the wheels fall off and i remember immediately like i said to you the other night i said like clenchers would break up and i think you had like a little waiting weary uh window and then one day you were like, fuck this, I need to do something else with my life. And I think you took a lot of your energy that you would be putting into all the things we're going to be talking about. Yeah. I think it all kind of came from, well, I don't have all this time to contact. And now we look at it, laugh and be like, look at all the, the hours spent on the telephone, all those hours, like um, physically handwriting letters, sending out tapes, sending out shirts, trading this stuff. You had all this energy and you had all this will to push clenchless. I think it was the real big thing that you kind of like needed that bounce off. 
like, all right, clinch, this is over. Yeah. I mean, it was it was kind of like good that there was no money to be had playing for me in a, in a hardcore band. And, and what I mean is there are a lot of people out there that can eke out a living, meaning they can eat every day they've got food to eat or a place to stay. What a lot of them will never tell you is they live with their parents when they're not on tour. Um, and when they're on tour, they have just enough money. But that's like, for me, that isn't enough. And, you know, I'm not knocking anybody that does that, but I'm saying my personal standards for what I want to do in my life, it just wasn't enough. And being that I couldn't even eke out meal to meal playing in a band, I had to do something else. And, you know, we're kind of like glossing over like my 20s. Um, I started the band when I was 15, so give you kind of a timeline. But I spent my whole 20s trying to be in that band and i got close to 30 and literally was just like i don't know what to do with myself like i i got a scholarship coming out of high school to ha to get like a art degree or something whatever and i turned it down because i wanted to be in a band like i was like i'm gonna be agnostic front fuck going to school i hated school so like going to more of it when i didn't have to was not going to be something i did so i'm i'm close to 30 at this point and i'm like well f you know not that i wanted i wished i had gone to school but you know i'm sitting in a moment where like do or die for me and that meant either make something out of yourself or live with your mom and i love my mom but for me, I don't live with my mom. Like, that's not an option for me. Uh, and I'm saying my personal standard. My mom would love if I lived with her, but, you know, I'm not going to do that. And so it was like, well, what do I do? And, you know, you think about it in hindsight. Of course, in that pants-shitting moment, I'm not thinking, well, if I can walk into a room filled with people like Cold as Life or COA or Pete Morsey or all these scary people and, like, be their pal well all these business people they're not as scary as those motherfuckers are you know if i can you know cold call some dude about a show i can do that in you know the business world but you're not thinking about it that way it just sort of happens and you're like oh yeah i, I didn't get too nervous on that phone call with that dude because it was just like that time i talked to so-and-so and so it started snowballing into actually making a living like a real living, you know, like where you can have stuff kind of thing. You said that you never really liked school. No. But I know you to be one of the people that I can just say without talking to you for three weeks, the next time we speak on something, you're going to tell me something you either just, just taught yourself, something you're still practicing, and then also something that you're starting to learn, like adding into your arsenal. Yeah. So if you didn't like school... What was the onus of, like, you know, self-teaching? I'll tell you why I didn't like school. Because they wanted, they want you to learn in their structure at their pace. I don't like, I don't want to sit through a class where someone explains and explains and explains and explains. And then I read and I read and I read and they test. I want you to tell me about, like, 70, 80% of the idea and let me try it. And if it, whatever that thing was, if I'm successful, that's the test. But that's not how school works. So it was always this boring waiting around and, and you know, not a, a great 
level of detail like as an example in school like i never learned past the civil war i would always flip through the back of the book and it was like all talking about you know uh when ronald reagan got shot i'm like that wasn't that long ago when i was in high school and and like why aren't we talking about that shit talking about the civil war it just led to me hating school but i love to learn and what's awesome about now in the future i can get on youtube and learn anything for free and go try it i can watch half the video and try it and when i fuck up go back and watch the other half Sometimes I'm successful only watching a half. And that's how I, my mind works. It's too fast for school learning. Having the mindset that you could teach yourself anything, what was the first thing that you were really starting to look into? And what was the drive to start researching this next uh, vocation you were looking for? Well, uh, at some point along the line, early 2000s, where like, you know, the internet's like becoming what we know now. Um, pre myspace though it's like well the band needs a website you know you got to have a place to send people to like buy your stuff or whatever and um i did two things one was there was a continuing education program at the university of memphis that was like a few hundred bucks to um learn html and that's basically the extremely basic skeleton of websites thinking like maybe i'll do this for a living one day the second thing i did was there was a kid that went to shows named adam height who is a web developer to this day and i paid him to build a website for me and then what i did was i opened the code and i would just delete shit see what happened and do that over and over and it was brutal and it was frustrating but it got me kind of sort of understanding how a website is made, at least like, you know, the idea of, and I started tinkering around with shit like that just to get the band out there to, you know, I've sell like shirts with my, you know, designs on them and things like that. And that was the first thing where it's like, Oh, I I think I kind of might sort of know something that, at some point, someone want, might want to pay for. It's interesting that even as you're learning, you're like, I don't know, maybe down the line this will work. But I know one of the things that we kind of glossed over, not just your 20s, was that like Clintress had a specific look to the merch. Yeah. Joel specifically had some of the best graphic characters. I mean, even like that Santa Claus, where you drew this big old Santa Claus on a plywood board and then cut it out and had it as a decoration. Like, you weren't just like, oh, you know, maybe I'll build computers. You were all, I mean, websites. But you were already creative as hell and, like, constantly designing shit. Yeah, so that's, like, when I started um, getting into the world of being paid to do do something, um, I had lots of things to show. Like... I've done tons of band merch, my own, and then other bands. I, you know, I had done websites for my band. I had printed shirts. Like I, during those days, I designed everything and printed it and shipped it. And so I learned all this stuff that, like, kind of snowballed its way into knowing something that someone would pay me to do. But I also had examples, so I could. I I wasn't showing up going. Oh hey, uh, yeah, I want to you know get paid to make a website for you. It's like I've already done it. Like I did it in a half-ass shitty way, but they don't know that. They just see the end result, and so 
that served me well, like trying to get my foot in the door. Again, it's just awesome to look at some of the other things that we spoke on other episodes, but it comes back. It's like there are people who, and Joel is one of them, this is why he's on the show, who did all this work in hardcore and then would later turn it into a legitimate enterprise. And I think sometimes people gloss over and don't give the credence to what exactly we're doing in hardcore, you know, whether it was like, especially back then you had screen printing patches, screen printing t-shirts, you know, there's, you know, building good business relationships, learning how to build a good business relationship. I mean, and then like, if you're creating art, I mean, that's even, you know, like flyer art, I've heard people say that flyer art helped me, you know, do this or that in graphic design. Like the stuff that we do in hardcore can actually be turned into a legitimate enterprise outside. Yeah. It's funny. Like, thinking about what hardcore is and it, it, it really is do it yourself like think about it like from the very beginning oh no one will book our shows we'll book our own shows no one will put our record out we'll put it out ourselves like oh someone comes in the show that doesn't belong we don't want the bouncers there we'll, we'll take care of that person um and now like diy is like a mainstream phrase there's all kinds of youtube videos like young couples uh, uh, DIY build your own flower garden and things like that and like I'm not saying that idea exclusively exclusively came from hardcore like we invented it but we built an entire world on the idea and so it was totally natural for me to just take that thing and just carve my own path like with a real living people who do bands often pine to like return to that like lawless i don't care i don't have to get up in the work and you know band life it was crazy how quickly you would actually not shun the former band life but you you shut off anything that didn't mean you pressing forward for a while and i know you know we talked a lot about it at that time but you were like i only got a certain amount of time and i gotta make it count yeah um elaborate someone like how you got yourself shifted gears towards a way more professional career Oh, man, it really, that part, like, is the hardest for me to explain because you just have to have complete and utter terror about what happens if you don't do it. Like, you, it, it's like without a net, so to speak. It's like there wasn't a moment where I had to train myself to be like, oh, well, don't be a, burn, a, a band guy. It's like, do this instead. It, where there was no thinking about it. It was like, for me, either do this or live in constant terror about how you're going to exist in the world. Like, how are you ever going to afford a car? Like, how are you ever going to, like, live in a house without you and your brother split, splitting the rent, you know? And, like, those things straight up terrified me. Like, horror movie. Like, that's why I hate horror movies. Real life was scary enough for me. And so to get to make that transition wasn't a choice. It was an on-off switch. It's like, this is what I do now. Like, when I heard Madball, I'm like, shave my head. I, this is how, I am this now. Kind of the same thing. It's just like, I, I do this now. It's awesome to see people be able to do that because I think sometimes we have a foot in each world, so to speak, or, you know, you don't go all in. Right. And people almost press, right? Oh, you don't want to go full this or full that. But I think to succeed in the way that you are, that you have to de be dedicated. And I guess instead of like, we can go through the nuances of every single code and thing you learn, but 
give us the rundown how one thing always kind of snowballed into the next thing for a bit. And, and you know, just like when I say snowballing, like learning this and then needing to learn this to benefit that and to build up your resume and your skill more. Yeah. So, um, like I said, it started with me taking that HTML class and, and picking apart the website that the friend of mine had made. And um, so basically how it happened was my brother and me were living in Denver at the time. My brother grew, spent his teenage years there. My mom met a dude on the internet who she's still married to. Uh, and they moved to Denver in, in 99. And I eventually moved there to be around my brother. And at some point, he w- he used to play drums in Death Before Dishonor at this time. And he wanted to be co- geographically closer to the band. And so we were going to move to Nashville. So he could kind of get into legitimate music work. And I don't know, like we're from Memphis and, and uh, you know, Memphis people, Nashville people, like, I don't know, there's just not a real meeting of the minds between the two places sometimes. So we weren't real hyped on it. We went to Atlanta. We went to Atlanta for a tarot show and we were just there and we were like driving home. We were like, you want to just move here? He's like, yeah. So we did. We no idea how the hell we were going to do anything. Luck would have it that a guy that I became friends with, I went to high school with this guy, his name's Jake, and he was like a preppy bro kind of dude, didn't get hardcore at all, kind of like bust my balls from afar, and I kind of thought he was, you know, an asswipe, but after, shortly after high school, I became pretty good friends with him, and he was living in Atlanta, working for the Atlanta Braves, and really specifically working for clear channel radio uh, on the team that broadcasts the Braves games. And uh, I ended up moving on the same street as him. And he's like, Hey, my boss at clear channel, his brother is starting an internet company. Like, do you want to meet him? He needs someone to build websites. Said, okay. Yeah. So, you know, he's like, this dude used to be in the secret service. He's like a good guy, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to be like one of these scary guys, right? Like, you know, like I said, you know, I've met scary people. I can handle it. And so I put together this like resume portfolio thing. Well, what was on it? Band shit, you know, terror shirts, chromags, things like that. Um, and I walk into this meeting expecting this like super expert level, like, you know, Nick Fury type dude. And he's a dude that's like three, four years older than me. He doesn't know his ass from his elbow. He's just got like the dogged determination to make this company work. So I looked out and he's looking at my stuff and he's real impressed. And I, he's like, can you do this, this, and this? And I just lied. I said, yeah. And he's like, all right, you're going to start right away. And so when I said on-off switch, it went from that meeting to literally flip the switch on and I worked every single day, 12, 14 hours a day, every weekend, my birthday, Christmas, everything. And I remember sitting there first few months going, man, I really can't wait like a couple years from now where I know what I'm doing because every little thing I had to Google it. How do you do this? How do you even call? How do you even say what you're even looking for. You know what I mean? Like you don't know, well, this happened. You're like, well, what, what does this mean when it happens? You're digging for hours and hours and hours on Google. And I learned by doing, like I said, I could not stand to sit through like, 
a class on this shit. Just let throw me in. Like let me dive head first in and I'll try not to drown. And that's how it happened. I just I just kept going. And and here I am, <laughs> you know. Well, I guess I say like you're saying that basically everything that you would now come to make as your living. We'll get into what you're doing and all this stuff, but yeah. like, it was all from Google. You you graduated from Google Academy. Yeah, yeah. So Google more specifically, there's a website called Stack Overflow where people it's like a forum where people post, you know, oh, I did this with JavaScript and this happened. How do I fix it? And like I spent a lot of time on that. And you know, there are people out there that spend a lot of money on a degree that don't like guys like me. They call us you know, like copy paste developers or some shit like that. And like, hey man, whatever. There's more than one ways to skin the cat, and I've skinned the shit out of the cat. You know. I like that. That's the best they come up with, like as a disparaging remark. I'm just mad that they, you know, have decades of student loans to pay. <laughs> as you're building this up, you're working obviously professionally for them, but you're also have like you know your side business mm-hmm. and through hardcore. And I mean, you've touched on a lot of different cool things over the years, like mm-hmm. designing T-shirts, designing websites. What do you think when you're designing this stuff and they give you free reign, like what's the art? The artist, maybe if there is an artist that influenced you in the art that you're doing. Sean Taggart, the guy that did Agnostic Front Cause for Alarm, uh, Sheer Terror stuff, Carnivore, et cetera, et cetera. Huge. Um, Gary Gilmore, guy from New York, he used to draw these flyers that were some of the first flyers I saw that were for shows in New York. And there were these crazy things with like Fat Albert, like chasing the rest of the gang around and like, or uh, the one that was like, oh God, it was like Mickey Mouse chasing Donald Duck with a baseball bat, like cartoons, but like crazy, like, you know, and probably those two guys more than anything, just that was like, I just love that shit. I always liked cartoons, but not like Disney shit, like, you know, uh, Wile E. Coyote kind of stuff. And that stuff was just like, that's that's it for me. That's what I want to do. So a lot of my flyers just look like theirs. I know there's a lot of art out there, and it's like, it's one of the, it's one of the awesome things about Juice is he can literally just get out there and legit draw a flyer that looks nicer, but it's just like right out of the old school. And I love the, I love the flow of the characters. Um, very, yeah, you're right, very Sean Taggart. Yeah. It's hard to think of like somebody like Juice in a lot of ways that I, the way I do. I had a flip flume. You gave me a BlackBerry. You're like, yeah, I really, really? yeah. You were like, you gotta stop with this flow. And you <laughs> gave me this. It was after like this is hardcore 2008 or something like that. You gave me a BlackBerry. It was like rebuilt or some crazy shit like that. Yeah, yeah. So Joe referenced my side business. So for a long time, like pre iPhone, really, uh, I just sort of saw this like opportunity to to pick up broken phones and fix them and sell them on eBay and. Uh, you know, BlackBerry, not at first, but at some point, gained this little thing called a trackball. It's kind of like a mouse, the, the little ball that used to be an old computer mice, mouses, whatever. And, like, it was, like, a cool thing to customize it with a different color. And so, like, I would sell those little balls for Blackberries, or, like, I'd pick up one that the screen had broke, and I'd replace it. They're all made out of plastic, cheap plastic. So I always had extra ones. And I would do that. Like, I would... I would go out with a band on tour and I would have this like giant toolbox full of shit and someone would order something and I would like package it up and when we got to the venue, I walked to the post office and mailed the thing off to him. And I did that for a long time. 
This is more crazy shit that you're like, you know what? Let me take this BlackBerry apart. I can, and, and actually, I don't know anything about the iPhone, but I know that I, even I, with my like uh, crude level skills, were able to take some of that BlackBerry part stuff off. Yeah. <laughs> it just cracks me up to do that now we're talking about BlackBerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's an old man podcast. Web design was a part of what you were doing professionally, but you were also working in, uh, and teaching yourselves all the stuff, like whether it was the next thing and like the uh, web design. And then it was, were you doing more with also like Photoshop stuff for some of your clients? And then I remember one time you were explaining to me how they use stock photos. I know like as you kept going over and over, you were like every year you were adding to the array of what you were up to. Yeah. So like I said, the guy that I, I, I started working for, uh, he started this company and, it, and when I'm saying a company, like it didn't have a name. It was just me and him. And like, he didn't really know what he was doing, but he's very good at selling and rubbing elbows with rich people that had money. And there's like a benefit to not knowing what you're doing in that, in a traditional, like, website creative business like like a marketing company you would have someone that did the design and then you would have a developer build it and then there's like variations in like front-end development meaning that person would build what you see and interact with and the back-end developer would build like the database where the information was stored well since we didn't know what any of that shit was i did all of it like you know they needed a client needed a new logo I created the logo and then I designed the website and then I built the website. So like when I'm saying I'm digging around on Google, I'm not talking about for one thing. I'm talking about for everything. They had a video that needed editing. I had to figure that out. I mean, I did crazy shit. Like I did this website for this business that was a weight loss business and they had taken a before and after photos of a patient and he was standing in front of a door. You know, those doorknobs are like, not a knob, but like a curly handle. Yeah. Well, he took his profile shot in their office, and the curly handle looked like it was his dick sticking out of his pants. So, like, <laughs> I had to figure out how do you, like, make something like that go away because they want to run this photo, and, like, the dude's dick can't be out, right? So, it taught me all kinds of shit that if I had gotten a traditional job, I would only be doing one thing, and I would never know how to do all of this other shit. And knowing how to not just do a little bit, do a lot of it, like really served me when like I got further down the line. So you just said that I didn't know that's how people worked websites. Yeah, it's kind of like your job where like the uh, the carpenter's not laying concrete. You know what I mean? No, we'll break your fucking hands. <laughs> right. But for me, I was the guy that like drew up the plans, framed out the building, laid the concrete, hung the sheetrock. You know, taped it all. I did everything. That makes so much more sense than the level of like sick, crazy shit you can do now. Yeah. So I had my hands in everything. I mean, I look at you like an entrepreneur. So I'll say like, do you think of someone who wants to go out and push their own thing? How soon when they're doing stuff kind of like what you're doing that they need to also kind of keep options open like the way that you would have business that you're getting paid by that guy mm. but you had to decide like, how soon should they start saying like i'm good enough that i can sell my services beyond what i do I, it depends on the person like uh you'll know if you're one of those and you you'll definitely know if you are one you might not know if you're not because a lot of people are delusional 
about how much they can do or how driven they do. Like being an entrepreneur is like a cool thing now or like a CEO and all this kind of shit. Instagram kind of stuff is like very popular. But I'll just say this. If you're someone like me that can do multiple things at once and be good at them, you're already doing multiple things. You may not be getting paid anything for it because I wasn't for a long time, but you're already doing it. Like I, I fix stuff like that's kind of like a hobby of mine. And I, I didn't just start doing that. I was taking apart shit when I was a kid and I couldn't put it back together again. You know what I mean? So everything I'm doing and doing multitasking, I guess maybe you'd say, I've always been doing that. You know what I mean? So it was like, how soon should someone do that? They're already doing it. You know what I mean? I know it's, it's a silly question, but I, I, for me, I think that I see friends sometimes, the minute they can make a single digital drawing, they're selling it on the internet. And like I, I've seen stuff like that, and that was where, sort of where I was getting it at. But I also... Okay, well, I will say that maybe that's the... I'm not one to like poo-poo the modern age and the internet like you know older people are, but I will say there are some shitty sides of it, and that one of them's that like oh I you know I traced this drawing on my iPad, and would you like to buy my tracing of it? And it's like oh, come on man, like that the internet's allowed that kind of shit to flourish, and like that's just bullshit. It's especially weird when you're like looking at like the like what kids are paying for. Yeah. I was talking about like more like artwork. You know, like yeah. for you, you were living on your own and you were pressing forward. You were making money. You had enough smarts to also keep a foot in like doing the occasional thing for hardcore. But where did you start really thinking that not only were you capable, but you were starting to be able to like serve more than one client? Like you started building your own clientele, like your own client base more than working for one guy. Uh, I tried to do that right off the bat because... You know, I, I have never really been one to tend to put my all my eggs in one basket. You know, it's like I did that for so long with the band, like emotionally speaking. Like the band was the thing in my life. And like growing up in Memphis, like there wasn't a revolving door of people that wanted to be in a hardcore band. So when other guys in the band had other things to tend to and not be in the band that like ruined my whole being it was like i can't go on a tour i can't play that show like we can't write songs because this person has this and this person has that and so it was like i can't just do one thing what if that one thing shits the bed which the band effectively did I've got to have so many other things. Like, I own two cars. I own two phones. You know, like, one thing breaks, I've got a backup. I do that with everything. I do that with jobs. Like, I've got a very good job now, but I still have side clients because what if they downsize and they, you know, fire me? Like, I got to I gotta live. You, you really messed me up with the whole when the band left thing because I'm like, damn, that is exactly what it is. Like, all right, well, you guys screwed me. Fuck this. Everyone's going to get me. Yeah, right. It's an interesting timeline you had. I say this because you went from being the most Memphis person ever to you were traveling. I mean, you lived in, you went from Colorado. Did you go home in Memphis at all? I, I lived in Memphis till I was 27. Moved to Denver. I was saying, did you go back to Memphis 
from Denver and then you go to Georgia. Okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, I don't know. When I was like 21, I moved to Denver briefly because um, I had no money. Basically went and lived with my mom, you know, because I had to. Um, but that didn't last very long. Yeah, got back like on my short. feet and then I moved back to Memphis. All right, so you did go to Memphis yeah. and then you went to Atlanta. No, I, then I went back to Denver. Oh, uh, that's right, you did. Yeah, and lived there for, I don't know, a year or two. And then we went to South Carolina. It was like a scheme my fucking brother and mom cooked up. Like It was like, well, you guys can move to South Carolina. That's where my mom was. She got moved there for work. And she's like, you'll be closer to Nashville. Like I mentioned, we were going to go there to Nashville. And like you just you know kind of like save up money and go there. Well... We do that, and then, like, Death Before Dishonor does, like, 800 weeks in Europe, and, like, you know, it's like, my brother's off, you know, playing in Russia and shit, and I'm sitting there in South Carolina, like, what the goddamn fuck, man, like, you know, like, <laughs> you know I got bamboozled, uh, so, yeah, we, and like I said, we went to the Terror Show in Atlanta, we're like, let's move there, you know, so we did, and so I went from Memphis, Denver, back to Memphis, to Denver, to Atlanta, um, I lived in Atlanta the longest besides Memphis and I lived here in Philly for a couple years and right now I am in South Carolina because my family can't seem to get away from there. So who knows where I'll live next, but yeah, that's kind of the, the path. I know that with COVID people are understanding it more, but a lot of what you did, I mean, you did go to some offices, but you did a lot of remote stuff, didn't you? I'd never have, I have not been to an office since 2008. So that's why I know, like when um when COVID did happen, you're like, this is my life anyway. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I work with people, and they're like, they're like, wow, you know, working from home, and and like, I've been working at a place I work at now for uh, about a year and a half uh, as an employee. They were a client of mine before that, and like, people were like, wow, can you believe this? Like. You know, this is so crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I've been doing this shit for 12 years. Like, oh my God, really? Like, give me tips. You know, it's like, uh, this is all normal to me. That's actually great that you said give me tips because I was, I know that you taught me a couple things and I want you to kind of get into like kind of your rules for working from home and how you've been doing it since, uh, you know, 2008. Basic, like, I don't know, one, two things. Uh, if you have enough room where you live, designate a place to work. Because what's going to happen if you do all of it on the couch where you normally hang out anyway, your mind is always going to be like, when you're working, well, maybe I'm also playing because I'm in my play spot, right? Like, your mind is not separating the two. And then conversely, you'd be sitting there watching TV and feel guilty. Like, well, I'm already sitting here. Maybe I'll do some work. And it's like, you know, if you're charging by the hour, you know, that's great. But if you're not, then you're just doing that shit for free. The second thing is what fucks most people up. They really don't get this. Uh, is get fucking dressed like you're going to work. Like when I wake up, I get a full outfit on. I'm talking about like I'm not wearing a suit, but I could walk into an office and like they wouldn't throw me out of the place. It's kind of related to the first point is if you're working in your pajamas, you're, some part of your mind still thinks you should be in bed. And you cannot be as effective when your mind and your body are like, oh, we're, we're, we're relaxing. You have to separate. Put your shoes on. Put your pants on. Like, you know, you're probably going to have to be on Zoom anyway. You know, so get fully dressed. Like, I'm, if I'm awake, I'm fully dressed. 
you said something about when you go into uh, like a job situation like this and you're like, hey, man, I'm going to work from home. I remember a certain time you were telling me how you had to like track your time specifically so you can build a client. And what you just said there about then you're wasting time, that's something that we always talk about in projects. Like, hey, if you're spending this much time and it, it relates to construction, it definitely relates to show promoting in the sense where how much time am I spending fucking around with a flyer or fucking around with a Excel sheet. Mm-hmm. Give me the, the listener some, some Joel wisdom that you passed down to me about wasting time and everything that you're working for hourly and the importance of it. Well, this is something like that I really try to get my, my mom on. Uh, she's 66. So, you know, she didn't grow up with all this technology and shit. So she's pretty good. I mean, iPad and phone and all that shit. But like, you take these apps that are default on your phone for granted. Like you tend to be like, if you get the bug of like, I'm going to be productive what's the apps Jocko uses or what's the apps, you know, Tim Ferriss uses? Like, who cares? They're, I'm telling you, here's what you need. You need a calendar and you need a reminder app. And they will save you tons of time. And the reason being, you only have enough gas in the tank to do so many things in a day. And the reason why human beings form habits is because we instinctively know this. You don't have to think about tying your shoes or brushing your teeth and shit. It, it's some other part of your brain is control of that. So you don't have to think about it. And that's what you should do. You should get a reminder app instead of going, Oh man, I got to pay that bill on the 15th. Don't remember to pay the bill on the 15th. Put in the fucking app and let that thing remember to tell you, you've got more time to spend on things that actually are effective, things that make you money or other things that save you time and money. And that's really it. Like you don't need any magical apps. There's a calendar and a reminder app on every fucking phone in the world. And everything in my life is in one of those apps. Like I could pull it up right now and it'll remind me. Sometimes they're reminders about bills. Sometimes they're reminders about like I have one that goes off every day at 9 a.m. And it says your only choice is to fight back. And what that means to me, it's my daily reminder of like I want more than what I've got. I have to fight at it every fucking day. And it's just it's just like a a robot tapping like, hey man, you you know, do do better. Um my calendar. Like I put in, like go to Joe's house to do this podcast. Like I put all that shit in my phone because that frees up my mind, you know, to to be effective and do my actual shit and not be mired down like, oh my God, what do I gotta do that? What day is that that I have to go there? And like when is that? Like, even if it's something fun, like, when is my vacation? And I just fucking put it in a fucking app. One of the things that you're doing now is that you went from having a client who retained you, and at a certain point, you became so intertwined with them that you went ahead. They were like, you basically told them, you just pay me a salary because. Well, it was, it, kind of, yeah. So, the company that I mentioned that that the guy started, and, you know, he didn't know anything about. That lasted about eight years, and it didn't end well. Um, I was very mad when I left, and this kind of goes to not keeping all your eggs in one basket thing. There were a lot of things they told me about equity splits and all this other stuff that never happened, and 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 I left. And but before that, about a year before that, I was like starting to see the writing on the wall, and it was like 
I need like I had side clients, but not enough to like replace my income. And so like I, I was like I need to work up to being able to replace my income if I have to. And I took on a client who is now my employer, and it was an hourly an hourly thing at first. And you know I read a lot of stuff, psychology, self help stuff like that, and. I kind of learned the right way to ask for things that might be scary to ask for. And so I was like, I hate tracking my fucking time. It's so annoying. Like, you know, oh, I spent 10 minutes doing this and four minutes doing that and an hour doing this. So I was like, I totaled up everything they had spent on me in a, in a particular month. And no one ever says numbers. I'll say numbers is noise the shit out of me when people are like, oh, it's this amount of money. So they spent about $6,500 in one month to me. And so I'm like, okay. I said, hey, here's how much money you spent with me. You could just pay me five grand a month and I'll do whatever you need, which is kind of the way lawyers are retained. You pay them a fee and they're there for you when you need them. And if you don't need them, you still pay them. And that's what I'm talking about. And I just asked for it and I got it. And... That worked well because I also took a job at another company at the same time. And so I had double income. And then I really did not enjoy the other job. And the client that was retaining me were like, hey, we, you know, we want to um, hire someone in-house and just let you know it'll probably wind down. And I was like, well, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. Why, you know, why not? And we're like, oh, really? Yeah. So I interviewed and uh, I got the job and that's where I work now. And so it went from being like trying to replace my income with several clients. It was replacing my income with one job. And now I supplement my income with side clients. You brought up Tim Ferriss previously and then you just mentioned self-help. And along the way, along with the technical data and all the stuff that you learned and like some of the business trade aspects of what you do, you were constantly hitting me and telling me, check this out, check that out. All, you know, and it was uh, through Audible and other things. Where, What was the first thing that drew you to that um, area to pay attention to? And talk about some of the stuff that you've read that has impact and people that you listen to, et cetera. Well, I'll say this. Like, I... I the first book that I read that like really set me on that path and probably the most impactful with just straight up actionable stuff is this book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. It's by a, an author named Ramit Sethi. That's just Google. You'll figure it out. Sounds like a scam. You know, the book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. But basically what it is, it's how to effectively manage your money in the modern day. It's what they should teach you in high school, but they teach you stupid shit like algebra that you're not going to use unless you're an engineer and whatnot. And that dude has a lot of courses that I ended up taking. And I'm like one's called how to talk to anybody because I have always had anxiety around people. It's hard for me to talk to people that I don't know. I'm better at it at 40 than I was at 20 by a mile, but it's still something that I have to, consciously make effort so i take these courses like that um some of them are how to negotiate like at a job like how do you negotiate for shit you want like um and that really got the ball rolling all that stuff and it is far more important 
to learn that kind of shit than it is to learn any technical skill. Because this is the hardest part, was the hardest part for me to internalize. And a lot of times when I'm telling younger friends of mine that are wrapped up with being like, you know, hardcore guy, tattooed, you know, ass beater, that they have to not be so married to being a weirdo 24 hours a day and improving yourself so you can be likable what and reason why i'm telling i'm saying this is because people hire and do business with people they like above everything else like it's table stakes to say you're technically good at a job it's what they're really looking for are you an asswipe like can they stand working with you like you know you you can do the job and you can do it effectively, but do they like you? Do they want to invite you to the Christmas party? And we all want to be like, well, I'm fucking, you know, I love hardcore, shave my head, pierce my face, like freak all the time. But like the sad truth is the world fucking rejects that shit. So on some level, you kind of have to learn to uh, wear a mask, you know, not the COVID kind, like the social kind. And that was very hard for me to wrap my mind around. You know, I came from a mother that told me, like, oh, I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, like, you know, you know, people should like you, you for you. That's only partially true. Your friends are going to be that way. Your family are going to be like that way. But the business world won't. They just won't. And so that was the biggest lesson I learned through all that stuff is to learn to be a person that, other completely normal people enjoy being around. I mean, you're still a six foot plus tattooed dude. Yeah. So you already have like, you're not like, I'm not going to call you cuddly, <laughs> you know, like, and, and you gave me that look like, uh oh, what's he going to say? <laughs> so, but yeah, you do have to, you do have to work within it. I have friends who have head tattoos and face tattoos, and some of them are good at what they do, and some of them, kind of have that fuck you mentality Mm -hmm. and the fuck you mentality will get you on the game but it ain't gonna get you any further no and that's that's the thing the game you said it the best that 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 thing playing the game is how you get ahead in life and everyone starts at a different point rich people are born playing the game their parents are very good at playing the game therefore they've naturally become good at the game I didn't even know there was a game and I have the worst personality naturally for the game, but playing the game, like, what do I mean? Going to coffee with people that like have no personality. Like they've never been on a tour. They've never seen crazy shit that I've seen, but like, I got to pretend that they're interesting. Sometimes they end up being, but I have to at least like put in that effort. Sometimes you got to get in the elevator and talk about the weather. I mean, there was a point in my life I'd rather castrate myself than do that. But, you know, it is the biggest mover of the needle above everything. In construction, if you don't know anything about sports, you might as well just tell everybody to go fuck yourself. Right. To the point where I, I never, 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 never pay attention to football. Right, me either. But I'm going to also look at the football score to have something to talk about. But I've gotten better at being not telling people I don't watch football or I don't give a fuck about sports. I'll tell you the same thing. I have a Memphis Grizzlies logo tattooed behind my my ear. And so people see it. And they ask me about the Grizzlies. And for a long time, I was like, I don't know, fucking just basketball still in the season? I have no idea. 
Well, again, going back to apps and shit, my phone now just tells me what the Grizzlies score is every day. So if somebody that like I care about entertaining their punishing conversation about sports says, oh, how the Grizz doing? I'm like, oh, well, they beat the Rockets last night by 10 points. Like, it just using my phone to like help me like not be a weirdo, you know? And the whole thing that you're doing is all from home. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a lot about personality, but also about productivity and excellence. And I know that you, you really always push that even with with our website this hardcore website and all this stuff you you have this like half half to be refined where did you start realizing that you needed to like step it up because everything that was now coming on with this uh company that we were just talking about you know i i guess in some way like i'm i'm i i don't think i'm a perfectionist but like i try to get as close to as perfect as i can I've always been that way. Like it, it just in my personal projects, like if it's doing something for one of your shows, like doing a flyer, like I want it to look like a finished piece for my own sake. But what if I had to show it to some normal person and that helps me get a job, which it eventually did. Like it needs to be as refined as I, as it can. Um, what I went on to learn because I did not go to college and don't have that like reference of like, good grades and like uh you know those extracurricular activities and and like just no real like level set of what standards for things should be i the job i work at now the people come from amazon and american express and and into it and like you know one of my bosses has been in the wall street journal which is a huge deal in the business world and you learn that just being pretty good isn't enough. You have to be like a straight up ass kicker. And what I mean is you have to be very good at your job. You have to be effective with your time. You have to learn to say no when someone wants to rob you of your time. That may be coworkers that want to meet about a project that you're not currently working on. You have to be inquisitive enough about how other aspects of the business work in order to those people to notice you there are people that are way above me way more experienced than me that if i hang my head and just do my job they'll never know who i am and i'll never go anywhere so that's what they expect they expect you like if there's two options well you have the option to do an a or b you got to do both of them because that's what ass kickers do there is no there's no other way to do it looking at not only just the business side of what you're working on, but you're some of your creative stuff. You are obviously heavily influenced by cars. Yeah. And to the point where you were kind of starting to make like those t-shirts, was it a shirt or like yeah. the decal and all. Mm-hmm. It's amazing just to see you be able to like, oh, you know what? I have this uh, hobby or interest and now boom, you start doing these uh, like what? Like cause, was it because you had clients that did something similar? No. So, so um, I am in the cars and 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 I I like uh, American muscle cars and and a lot of people romanticize sixties and seventies and stuff. I'm tell you right now, I like modern muscle cars. I want to go fast as shit, but I want my seats to like you know cool me off, like air conditioned seats and shit. Like you know all that old school stuff looks cool, but it drives like shit. So how I got into the 
like the side hustle, I guess, of of car t-shirt stuff is that there are in every car there are what's called trim packages. So the car you see on the commercial is always tricked out with all the options, and then there's a base model that costs way less, but it doesn't have any of the cool shit in it. So um, my car is a Dodge Challenger, and it's it is I'd say not in the middle of the hierarchy of trim packages, but it's closer to the higher end, but it's not the high, it's not the complete highest end. Well, the way the car industry works is they come out with these cars. Dodge makes a, a, a car called the Hellcat that's like started at 700 horsepower, now has some of them have up 840 like off the showroom floor. If you don't know about cars, that is fast as fuck. And those cars get people to come into the dealership to see the car. They can't afford it. And they buy the $29,000 base model. But for a guy like me who, like, when these cars came out, dealers were marking them up 20 grand. Well, I didn't have 80 grand to buy a Hellcat. But I could buy what I've got. And nobody gives a shit about the guy in the middle. There are tons of guys I see at car shows. They, they don't want a Hellcat shirt. Because you don't want to, you know, false claim your, you know, a gang you're not in, right? So I was like, well... Dodge doesn't make any shit for for guys like me. So I started drawing this stuff up, sticking it on shirts. So utilizing technology, again, I don't touch these shirts. They don't exist until someone orders them. I put up a design. I mock it up. I stick it on Etsy. I stuff it up with, like, related keywords and shit. People go on there. They find it. They order it. It goes to another company automatically who prints it and ships it. And I just – it just happens. And – Look, man, it doesn't move the needle in a major way financially, but it's like, you know, pays my cell phone bill, shit like that, you know, without me doing anything. Now that, thinking about that, you know, years years before that, you were the first one that started telling me about uh, SEO mm-hmm. and optimizing, and you kind of went from like, look at that little base of like, oh, this is how the internet kind of works, and years later, you're like, Look, man, I got I got a little side hustle. I don't have to do nothing because of the internet. Mm-hmm. I know some of that was uh, like in that um, the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, mm-hmm. and um, there's so many good sources of information in that regard. Tim being one of them. As you're learning all this stuff, you're still. I mean, your brother eventually no longer was in Death for Dishonor, mm-hmm. but you were still really active with hardcore, but at a different level because you weren't playing. Yeah, and then um, but you still came up that this is hardcore. Yeah, like, so I said I had to wear masks socially to be accepted by business people. This is hardcore, right? I just take that motherfucker off, you know what I mean, for a whole week. Like, I would come up here. The fest is only three or four days, but I would come over a whole week and run around with you all the time. And, like, it was, like, where I got to, like, not have to be anything but an antisocial weirdo that, that I, I naturally am. Juice and I used to get up sometimes a day or two before the fest and start... Going on these like four hour shopping sprees and buying the craziest shit ever. Yeah. Um, literally, Joel would be the first soldier on the ground. And then once we moved to the electric factory, especially, holy shit, <laughs> yeah. tent building. Tent building and, uh, <laughs> God, man, like. So he's doing all this stuff professionally, but then the weekend of this hardcore, it's like we were going through some missions, man. <laughs> well, yeah, it was like my vacation, like, you know. Like people I work with, they go on vacation. Like, you know, I'm not married and I, I don't have kids. And so, like, it's really different than what my coworkers do. Like, oh, we went to Aspen and went to ski. And, you know, the kids had a really good time. And I'm like, 
yeah, I went to Philly to like some really fucked up neighborhoods and I pushed porta potties around and then like, you know, I <laughs> built fucking 25 tents and then I like, I moved 800 pounds of cinder blocks with my bare hands and uh, then I got blackout drunk and fell down in the alleyway <laughs> and like, you know what I mean? Like, That's it's, to- <laughs> yeah, it's this total chaos compared to like your normal person's like vacation. One of the funniest stories of the end of it, this is hardcore, I'm just going to tell, because just thinking about the that's your vacation. The year that Marauder played in 2000, <laughs> it was 2010. Yeah. And uh, it's the infamous Marauder drummers won't crack. <laughs> Story no one gets to hear. <laughs> so. Hey, describe the guy first. Hold on, hold on. Let <laughs> give background. This is super funny. I had a big, crazy, like, old school van at the time and we used to fill this thing all the way up with tables and all this stuff we're talking about like because it was not the big electric factory venue and me and joel would go for like a three-hour mission of like buying shit from harbor freight and all these places going to the storage space yeah go in the storage space to load in what we had it's like the end of the fest everything no matter how tired we were Everything had to go back in the van. <laughs> so, Sunday night was, Marauder played on a Friday. Sunday night was the end of the fest. And I'd previously seen the guy in the morning. And so I thought, oh, right, he's gone. Me, wait, wait, back up for a oh, second. You got to oh, back oh, up. No, okay, I'm setting it up. I'm setting it up. I'm setting it up. So, this whole weekend has been capped off with this hilarious marauder drummer on crack thing and we're talking about a guy who looks like something out of blood sport like completely ripped <laughs> yeah well over six foot and the last time i saw him he was shirtless and then when we seen him on sunday morning he had a fucking drug rug on <laughs> it's 2010 and he's wearing a fucking drug rug in the middle of the summer okay <laughs> and uh me and juice we had good laughs over the marauder crack thing but uh we pack up this fucking van and we're like all right man another great year we're pulling away from the starlight ballroom and up against the fence is this fucking guy and the cops have him and i'm like that motherfucker's been on a crack binge for three days <laughs> <laughs> and then i heard that why he was arrested and i heard this from one of the bouncers was the venue had kind of been like all right cool you know we're wrapping up and he tried to climb the fence of the Starlight Ballroom to get back in. And then what me and you saw was when they had him up against the fucking wall. Yeah, there was a couple moments in there that I, I wanted to touch on that were that made it extra funny for me was this dude somehow got his hands on Marauder's Guarantee and disappeared with it into the Philadelphia weekend of, of doing whatever the hell drug addicts do all weekend. Or and, Friday night. Yeah, right. So... The whole weekend goes by, and, like, all of our friends know about this dude, and we're, like, joking about it. And, like, like kids were saying, oh, I ran into the drummer from Marauder and, like, gave him five bucks. He said he was lost or something like that. And so we had to make signs that said, do not give the drummer from Marauder money. And, like, we were trying to be like, is this dude ever going to show back up? Are we ever going to see him again? And there was one point, it, I don't know if this is funny to everybody else, but it fucking, it killed me at the time. Some kids from a local school came walking down the street during the show, uh, Saturday, I think, 
and they were like a drum line. You know how like hood kids walk through the neighborhood playing the drums. They got nowhere to go, you know, right? So you hear this this snare drum like, and everyone's like, what the fuck is that? And Damien goes, that's the drummer from Marauder. He's back. And it was it was so fucking funny. And so we go through the whole weekend like, where where what happened to this dude? We're all fucking dead tired worn out and like we're we're literally all right that's it the whole fest is done we're driving away and turn our heads and there he is the cops like jamming up against the wall like it was the craziest weirdest fucking thing it's like i was shocked i was like i rather, i love when joel tells the story because he's so much better right because to me they played friday night saturday night at one in the morning are you in the car with us when i'm yelling at the uh <laughs> I, man, Saturday I night, Cro-Mags plays and kill it. Yeah, and we're we're waiting for John Joseph, who's naked except for a towel. <laughs> and he's like, "I'm like, yo, John, you gotta go." He's like, "All right, man, ah, come on, man, I'm tired. Come on, John, we gotta get to the lock you in the fucking venue." We get in the car, and that's when Jorge calls, like a day after, <laughs> <laughs> it's like 28 hours after Marauder played. He's like, "Yo, you see our drummer anywhere?" And I'm like, "Yeah, last night." <laughs> and he's like, "Yo." You gotta find him. We're gonna put him in a fucking net. Like, I'm gonna find this fucking guy <laughs> with no real idea that he was lurking around. And then when he popped back up, that's when everybody's like, oh yeah, we seen him the other day. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. But the venue at the time was like two blocks from where people would drive in the neighborhood as like a little project area to get drunks. So it's super funny to think about it. And I was trying, now we're gonna get into the weeds of it. I'd actually get on stage. It was doing Reign Supreme and was like, please. And everyone thought I was making a joke. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> um, that's just some of the stuff that, like, so glad that you were there to see because I couldn't make this shit up on my own. Yeah. Like, no one would believe no it. No one fucking I've told people that Marauder story before. And, like, there's always a couple people that just sort of look at me like, it's too perfect. That lines up too good. I like I, I know they don't believe it. The ending of the story is crazier. So, we... We're back at the house, and Eddie Leeway calls me. <laughs> and Eddie Leeway is like, I found the guy from Marauder at the bus station, and I had him talk to his family, and we're going to get everything back together. So Eddie's band, Truth and Rights, which I also use as the intro from time to time, played this hardcore that year, and uh, it was fucking great. So Eddie was still in Philly, and way after the story, I guess the cops let him go or whatever. And Eddie Leeway is counseling this man on needing to get over drug addiction and get back with his girlfriend so we can be married. And it's like the fucking, <laughs> I can't fucking believe it, but only you would actually be able to be like, oh yeah, because it really was just me and you. Yeah, that's just so wild, man. The This Is Hardcore gang always starts off being like the tent building. Then when we got, when we had to get the stove, we had to get the like blocks to tie down the tents. And then, all weekend, there's just shit that's going on. Crazy stories that I come up and tell you. And then at the end of the night, when it's all said and done, we're all throwing tables and cleaning up, unpacking tents and getting everything ready. And it's just, to me, it feels like it, 25 minutes. But I know over all the years that you've done it, it probably felt so goddamn long and I feel so bad that some of these were four fucking days long. It, it I mean, it depends on at what point you are in the process like there's times where like i'd be standing there and it'd be like five o'clock saturday and i'd be so fucking worn out I'm like god fucking damn it i can't believe there's another fucking day 
But then, like, you know, you get to Sunday and you're busting down all this shit. And I mean, it's like fucking brutal shit. Like, I mean, it's not fucking easy. I'm talking about, like, we're not, we say cinder blocked. We're talking about foundation yeah, block. I, I'm, I'm, I'm downplaying it. It's like legitimately like 30 something pound foundation block. Yeah, they're heavy as shit. They have no real easy way to grab them. And, uh, I mean, this is brutal. But then you get through all that and you're like, you know, going home the next week, you're like, fuck, man. That was like, that was fast. That was too fast. The chaos of this is hardcore is something that. Throughout booking the fest, there's a lot of stuff that me and you talk about, and just like just daily what we got going on. But you're with me from the beginning to when we start building all the art. But it's really not until like the day or two before this fest that where it's like, oh fuck, here we go, another one. And I have a lot to thank Joel for from just coming up and hanging out, and we'll get into some of the stuff. But just like what he like on hands did, but also he gave us like our entire aesthetic um, from the logos and the website. And it's just really awesome to be able to have someone like you to be like, cause you know, you, until this, until the last year, you didn't live in Philly for this hardcore. Yeah. I lived so, to, lived here for 2018 and 2019. Yeah. So, you know, until that time it was always over the phone that we were kind of conspiring. Mm-hmm. So then it'd be like, you come up and you're like, fuck. All right. I got to get my ass kicked. <laughs> you know, like, this is going to get rough. And for me, I always wanted to uh, thank you. And also, like, it's just funny because, like, this is your vacation and we're carrying blocks around or it's raining or Mr. Chan's yelling on us about something crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. But I, I will say for the record, I'm retired. So as of 2019, I showed up and got drunk and high every second and didn't do a damn thing except that. And it was fucking refreshing (laughs) (laughs) oh it's great no it's it's just a blessing that like you got to come up and hang out but i really you really have a clean look for what we do i was even mind blown that when we started talking about doing the banner you figured out a way to do it so like it looked cool with the banner like yeah i'm always impressed that we don't have i mean like we still have our this is hardcore it's our aesthetic yeah but it's all from your design and your and your creativity that we have this yeah, it was always important for me to just, I don't know, when you just saw it, you knew which fest it was. Like, I, I don't like the, well, this flyer this year looks like this, and the next year looks like that, with, like, zero cohesiveness. Like, we change it up a little bit from year to year, but it always looks the same. It's like, you know, the point I've told a couple people is, like, you can go to Target in Philly and then drive to Atlanta and go to Target. They look the same. It's not like, hey, man, well, i, I got to give you a heads up. When you get to Philly, Target's actually green, not red. You know what I mean? Like, that's how branding works. And I wanted the same kind of idea to, to go with, like, everything with the fest. Whether that's the laminates. Even the laminates would give bands. Like, they look the same way the backdrop looks. And, you know, on and on. I like that you touch on branding because, again, we talk about the stuff that Joel's been, like, teaching himself. Like... From the SEO stuff, which is like search engine optimization, to uh, we were talking about hashtagging, and we were talking about social media and algorithms, and then you're constantly evolving what you're doing and thinking and the way you're moving. So then, like, when did you start getting uh, interested in like branding and just like understanding like brand power and the marketing and the things? It kind of started because like. 
I was sort of like an armchair quarterback with that shit. Like I could tell you when something was good and when something was bad, but I couldn't tell you why. And I didn't know why. And I wanted to know why. So then I could kind of, I don't want to say duplicate the idea, but apply the idea. It's like building a home. Like if you don't know how to build a home properly you can try it but the thing might fucking fall down the first time it rains you know you have to know how to do it right so that's why i started studying that shit and like hardcore shit was definitely the first place i applied it like this is hardcore was probably the the most prolific uh brand i guess like meaning it reaches the most people like i've done shit for lots of bands and in, in my band but like like, I get an email every month that tells me how many people come to the This Is Hardcore website. And, like, the amount of people that see that shit for the fest is way, way more than see the Chromag shirt that I did. I know besides band stuff, you design stuff for a future guest on the podcast. Uh, Jamie Bissonette is uh, the chef. Yeah I, yeah, I did, like, one small thing for him for his uh, restaurant, uh, Toro. Yeah, that's a... Uh, we're going to get the guy on and talk about it. But uh, what I was getting to is, once again, you know, like the hardcore stuff, you are able to work within hardcore and outside of hardcore, and you're also able to learn, like, the branding and how to make it work through This Is Hardcore. And um, you had said something uh, back when you are saying, like, you made some designs from the flyers and the, the clench fist days. That got you into the web, you know. Mm -hmm. And then once again, now you're like you're working with this is hardcore and you're using the fest and you're doing more shit with it as you're learning. Yeah, it's practice. Yeah, exactly. It's practice. And uh I always am just amazed like when you're like, Yeah, we'll send it to this website, then we'll know, you know, who comes from where. And you were the person that I mean, most of my information on that stuff directly comes from you. I'm always mind blown. Like uh recently you rebuilt our Philly Hardcore Shows page. Yeah. And basically made it easier to post a show listing than it is to make a post on the internet. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just always impressed that you're always constantly still to say like, even though you got that job that you like, but you're still refining, you're still searching, you're still rebuilding yourself and kind of like updating. I have to, because like I, I mentioned earlier that like to be effective, like be an ass kicker at your job, like a job with high standards that you have to like constantly, uh, improve and, and be inquisitive about other aspects aspects of the business. And the reason for me is self-preservation. I mean, I am naturally curious about like how the sales side happens. Like uh, that just as an example, but for someone that builds websites, there are an increasing number of technologies that come out every let's just say every month or every quarter whatever that make that more accessible to people that don't know how to write code and i'm even talking about like i am talking about like squarespace as an example or wix but also there's ai now that you could feed in information and it'll build you a website now that isn't going to work for a company like the one i work for now but at some point it might and then what happens to me like Hey, we don't need someone. It's like cashiers. Everything's self-checkout now. So if you were an ass-kicker cashier, well, you know, you're something else now because they don't need you anymore, and I don't want to be that guy. So I have to dig into other shit all the time 
to be to maintain my ass kicker status. What are you doing to look ahead in that regard? Like, so, like, so when you go from okay, these are the new skills being built. Are you looking and finding it through social media or through trade stuff? Like, how do you factor in what the next thing will be that you're going to learn and how you do it? I would say it's very important to like, you know, keep your ear to the ground with that kind of shit. You know, like, um, you know, fo- like you could follow. Just say you do what I do. So you could follow like web development or web design. Instagram profiles or blogs or whatever they just kind of talk about shit but honestly like that's a little bit of an echo chamber because everyone's going to be like well this new technology com- came out and maybe that means bad news for us there're going to be people well no because that'll never work so that's only going to get you so far honestly for me the most effective thing is is finding people that have more time in this world than I do and have seen things change and literally tell them I know like I my boss the guy report to name is John and he came from Amazon and I don't he might be the same age as me I don't know like I said everyone starts it from a different place but he is further along in the world than me and I I told him I'm like look man you and I both know that you could outsource my job to you know somebody in Russia um, if the company needed to do that. It would cost them less money. And I said, what do I need to do? What do I need to learn so like I'm not the guy you're sweeping out the door? And he's like, okay, like here's what you need to do. Like we're gonna do this and we're gonna put together this and you are gonna present it to the larger team so you can get FaceTime as the leader of this thing. And he's like combined with what you already know and what you will know that's like lethal weapon shit and so i guess the point is to find people it's like on your job you go to the oldest guy been on the job 35 years he's gonna yeah. retire soon and just pick his fucking brain like yeah, that's the old, how the old dog knows everything yeah exactly and he's gonna tell you how to survive he's gonna tell you how to play the game he's gonna tell you how to be better at the job and i will say if i were to tell anybody what I regret about not going to school is something very new to me is the concept of when you go to school, you gain connections that are in your world. Like when I left that company a couple years ago, there was like a span of a few months where like my clients at the end of the year, no one pays their bills on time, the companies. So it's like going into Christmas and all the clients are dragging their ass on, on, paying out invoices because they're on vacation all this shit and it's like who are my friends you're a cement mason cracker owns a tattoo shop and a barber shop you know barletti's a tattoo guy like and the thing is i'm not saying i went to I, i wish i'd gone to college to have different friends sometimes i wish i went to have more friends because you can tell me how to get into the union but that's starting from the bottom but if i had good friends that like I went to college with and got drunk with and held their head over a toilet like we're kind of bonded and they're like hey you know I work over here at Amazon and we need someone like you or I know someone at XYZ company that needs someone and I'm just now at 40 building those connections with people I work with now I'd never had them before and for me that's the biggest thing like that I would say if you're at the point of deciding whether or not to go that'd be the linchpin for me like looking back on it 
I also think that you diversify what you do at times too. I know building professional contacts is a big thing for you and you save a lot of them, but you also have projects that come just because pure from hardcore. And one of the things I want to ask you about was that you're finally editing. You're not editing the words, but you're basically putting together a book. Oh, you're talking yeah. about Max's book. Yeah. You're, yeah. Like you're involved with this book project. And that's something that's a completely different medium. Yeah, I'd never done a book. Like, so Max called me, a friend of ours, Max Morton. He has a, a project that's in the works, and I don't want to say too much because it's his thing. But he called me a couple of years ago, like, I'm doing this thing. Like, do you want to do the cover? And I said, I want to do all of it. And meaning drawing the cover, laying out the type, putting it in, like laying out a book. And I was like, I told him, I was like, look, man, I'm going to do it, but I have no idea how to do this. And we've kind of, you know, got taken it to the, to the point where it needs to be at this point. And it's, it's, in, it's in the hopper, but, uh, I, I don't know, man. Like I just, I like, I like and hate doing shit like that because I like when I'm successful and I'm like, hell yeah, I did it. And then when it's having, I'm having a hard time, I'm so mad that I decided to do <laughs> that extra thing. I'm like, God damn it, man. You know, why did I say not, it's not always someone asked me to do it. Sometimes I just decide it's like, okay, I'm going to try this fucking weird thing now. Well, I think are you developing like the aspect that, well, I've done a book now so I can do this and try to do more or is it just the curiosity of trying to go beyond what you're working on? Um, uh, Maybe a little bit of both, but probably more curiosity than like. I don't think that I would do another book. Like, Why I, not? I, I, I like being a part of my friend's project, and the nature of this project is, uh, it's good to work on it with Max because a lot of it has to do with your frame of reference for growing up and ours is similar. And so it's fun to do that, to do it for someone I'm not friends with. And like, like when he asked me to do this book, I said, I got to read it first. I can't do it without, I remember you telling me that. Yeah. yeah, I can't do it. Just like getting the, the cliff notes version. I gotta read it. And to do that and like do a book like that, I don't give a shit about, I don't know the person. Like there's not this like common ground of growing up and music and all this other shit. Like, I don't care. I don't want to do it. Like I get sometimes asked by people that I don't know to do their band merch. And I just tell them no, cause I don't care. Like I'd rather do, I'd rather do a death before dishonor shirt for free five minutes before Brian gets on a plane to Europe than have some kid pay me to do a band, his band. Cause I don't care about his band. So it's really the feeling it's, it's just, I don't know. In a, in a way, a roundabout way, it's like hanging out with my friends. Like you don't want to hang out with people you don't know. I don't want to do, you know shit like that for people i don't i'm not interested it's not a i don't mean it to be offensive to this proverbial person i don't know but i'm just you know it's one of the things i've learned to do is is to say no now did you use are you thinking about the um the book end of it you were saying is is, it was just too much for you to deal with is this like it's not the medium you like i don't know i mean it's just or is it just like dealing with the publishing and like the you know like I don't know. It's just like eating different foods. You know what I mean? Like you could eat something that's like, I don't know. You could go to one Italian restaurant and then go to another and it's just not as good as the other one. It's like, it's not super removed from what I yeah, do, but it's, it's just removed, a, but... like a couple of clicks off to where it's like, 
not that I can't do it, but it's just not as, you know, just doesn't get me going as much, I guess. Well, I only ask because obviously you can hand draw your ass off. You have a shit ton of calligraphy skills and actually even some graffiti skills. You have all these like creative hand things. Mm-hmm. You're great with the computer. I mean, she even had that notepad that you could draw on. And I just thought it was cool. You were kind of going to like, like is the book the high art? Is that is that like the final? Well, it's kind of like a mix of everything I've ever done. Because, well, that's what I'm getting because, to. Like, but is the is the book like the final conclusion of all your skills? In in so far as they directly relate to hardcore stuff, yes. Like it's like it's it's 25 years of flyers, records, T-shirts, etc. All kind of. Uh, distilled into one like thing that at some point i will be able to hold in my hand you brought up flyers and that's like a a shared love that you and i have it's just like that artwork that's like that's ours yeah you know like and uh i imagine if all the things continue that at some point you'll see some fucking like urban outfitters with the uh agnostic front crowd (laughs) (laughs) sure you know like yeah but those 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 old those old flyers were like to people our age like the blueprint yeah the aesthetic they're like hieroglyphics in a way yeah and you know you know maybe this is a a slight turn here but i have all of that shit i still have i have all those flyers i've got letters i wrote or got from richie crutch in 1995 who's a friend of mine now I've got letters from Jeff G. from Cold as Life that says, say what's up to the Memphis chapter of CTYC, which is fucking hilarious. Is I was a 14, 15-year-old idiot, you know what I mean? But I keep that shit, and I don't... I, I It's like, I would never like make a website with that shit on it, showing it off, or I would not like sell it, because like it's like kind of like sacred you know, scrolls to me, like... You know, I have, like, imagine some kid that was like me, like, wanting to know shit, and then, then, like, I open this, like, Pandora's box of shit and, like, look at all this stuff. I don't, where I think a lot of people are like, well, we should put all that shit in a book and put it out, and, like, why? It's not for, your only goal there is to show it to people that it's not meant to be for. Yeah. And it's just my philosophy on shit like that. It's like, I, I I take that stuff out sometimes and look at it and then I put it away. Like I don't take a thousand pictures and put it on Instagram. I have a couple flyers still glued to a piece of cardboard. I remember that, that card that piece of there. cardboard. It's still there. I keep saying one day Bob will get it. Like and then Bob can just put it on his wall in his bedroom or something. But uh <laughs> Bob's like thirty five years old. <laughs> Bob's like, no, I'm not doing that, dude. <laughs> I I bring that up because like that was our aesthetic. It kind of went away. And then, like, now every new band is, like, graffiti logo, yeah. guns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's everything that we kind of came up and through, you know, Clench Fist, Punishment. And it's right back. <laughs> and I know that uh, that's probably why you're getting hit up sometimes, like, to do some art. But how's it feel? Because I know, to me, it kind of trips me out, like, to see kids in 2020 trying to be like the 94 95 96 ever hardcore yeah it's pretty it's pretty fascinating to you know because when you're when you are a literal hardcore kid like i mean the the literal part being kid there's always some older guy that tells you like 
you know, what you're doing is just rehashing what we did, you know, back in 1937 or whatnot. So, like, even when we were 15, it was 95, and it's like, you know, everything's graffiti. Like, if you were in a hardcore in the mid-90s, you wrote graffiti on some level. It might have been just on paper, but you did. But then some, some fucking guy would be like, well, you know, I was writing fucking graffiti back with, you know, DJ Disco Fuckface or whatever, you know, like, you know, back back in the day. And it's like, so I don't want to get too on the level of like, well, they're doing what we already did. I mean, things come in and out of fashion. But nonetheless, it is it is kind of crazy to think like, oh, that kid is like half my age. And he's like drawing the same shit that I was drawing back then. You know what I mean? It's definitely like a weird because we were the kid. Yeah. Hardcore is really changed in a lot of ways and i know that you and i have a great time sitting here just not being like old men like god damn it don't want to go back because there's a ton of shit that's talked about back then i think people man people wax nostalgically because they have their own like hero thing and their own like oh this is my greatest time but it's like i i'm more aesthetically pleased while hardcore can continue to identify sociopolitically with what it used to it's growing in a weird way but also as it grows away from like let's say victim and pain error i got to front the next wave is also now worshiping this so it goes away from the originals but then people come back and they and they start like really getting behind things that we watched come up the first time yeah it's crazy because i like, remember 15 years ago like the kids all of a sudden like killing time out of nowhere like kids that were just like really into posse shit they were like oh killing time i was like wait a minute you know that band it's happening like that again where people are like oh i like this band and i'm like wow i didn't i didn't know that that band whatever you know using popular in air quotes but you know become popular with with kids and i don't know it's just the nature of it but i i'll say that aside from a couple things I think being into hardcore now is is better than it ever has been because like if you really need it like I needed it when I was a kid you can get your hands on it. You don't have to go through that desperation of being like I need it's like being a drug addict and you can't get drugs and you're going through withdrawal. Like now you can get on Spotify and just like you don't got to write letters to a crazy dreadlock maniac from New Jersey to explain bands to you you can listen to them and you can watch fucking shows on youtube and like that shit's so cool the only caveat i'll put to any of that is because anybody can access it anybody can access it so you have to be a little more careful with like the shit you put out there and i don't mean to be like oh we got to gatekeep all these posers what i'm saying is the more you insist the world sees this thing that you're fascinated with, the more people are going to come into it. And you can't complain that there's all these quote unquote fake people here. You know, you, you can't just like back in the day, you could take all hardcore's history and lay it out in the middle of, you know, fifth Avenue and no one would ever pick it up. But it's not like that now. And you can put advanced knowledge out there for someone that's not even a beginner and they sort of get the wrong idea and run with it and and that's just one of those things that like we i don't think all of us are are conscious enough of no i agree with that i feel that 
Yeah, I mean, there probably are different eras of hardcore where it would be cool to, I'd rather be from, I'd rather, I would like to have witnessed the contrast, but I wouldn't give up starting hardcore where I did. I wouldn't give up all the things that we all did because that was our story. I'd rather do than be a voyeur of it. And plus, in, and if you're looking at hardcore in 2020, you have 40 years of music when like the most accessible thing to everyone's life, which is a telephone. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that. So to dog out this year and act like, oh, this time's terrible. It's like, no, like you literally have, you're carrying 40 years of hardcore right at your fingertips. If you're ever feeling like, oh, no, no, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know about this whole thing. It's now there. And you also like, you know, you know, think about being a kid and like Agnostic Front was coming to play, especially for me, not being anywhere near where those guys are from. And like, you have to kind of mosey up to them and be, you know, kind of ask them questions, be a punisher. Like now you can just hit up, you know, Roger on the fucking internet and be like, Hey, look, can I ask you this? And he'll respond. And that's fucking cool. It's crazy to think of hardcore in 2020. And so much of it is like, not the big city towns. I mean, there are still the big city towns and the big city bands, but it's got to be weird for you to like now be like, oh, cool. Now there's an entire Southwest or Southeast and Midwest hardcore scene. I'll tell you scene. what trips me up is is that kid Carter from uh, Alabama putting the out coolest. the clutch tape. He's the coolest. <laughs> I, I, look, it is cool. I, and I, I've met him and, you know, it seems like a cool dude. I don't know him very well, but I... I had family that lived where he's from. And to think that he likes that crutch tape, I remember buying that crutch tape through the mail when it came out and knowing that I was the only person in a very long radius that even knew what the fuck that was. And now there's a kid from Mobile, Alabama putting the fucking tape out. I cannot express to you how non-existent hardcore was in that area even not that all that long ago, you know. So it, it it is fucking insane to me. No, it's a it's a trip. I think and again, it goes back to the benefits of like hardcore. Obviously, is going to be better now because there's more possibilities and there's just so much more access. And as Joel said, with access comes responsibility. And you got to understand that the internet and the the social media posts might make people aware of what we're up to, but unless you're in the show and you're like in our world and in our culture, it's just passing by. And a lot of the stuff that we've always held on to, I think that kind of gets picked up by this generation. And then for the next five years, it's cool. And then it switches up mm-hmm. and then our cool stuff comes back. And so like the Carter thing's great, but also like there's a sense of excitement and pride from the Midwest and obviously, uh, a certain ex band member of yours has a band, which I will not name because I don't feel like it. <laughs> He's talking about White, <laughs> white Paul uh, reserving dirt naps. Um, I don't. I, I terrorize him on Twitter, so I didn't want to yeah, bring it Joe up. Joe busts Paul's balls a lot, so he's still uh, here too. You know, reserving reserving dirt naps. They played the first day of a This Is Hardcore first band situation, and then boom! Now, like, there's another there's another era of the Memphis <laughs> hardcore and kids 
beyond Memphis from the Midwest, not just from the East Coast of yeah. California, right. are into it. That's got to be a trip for you to be like, wow, now the next group of band. It is. It's so my band played a show a, a little over a year ago in Memphis. Uh, a, a guy was doing a, a, you know, every town has a fest now. Just basically means a long show. And it was one of those. And, and the kid asked and like, I always just say, ask my brother, because I don't want to deal with it. And if he can finagle, like, enough money to make it to where I don't have to, like, spend a shitload of money to do it, I'm more open to it. And just the right combo of things came together to play the show. And it, it, it was so weird. There were guys with beards coming up to me and be like, hey, you got me into hardcore when I was in high school. I'm like, you have a fucking beard. you know that happened a bunch of times and uh that night and it just like it was the craziest fucking thing because i can remember being the kid that was like no one likes this but me i had to make my friends like it because no one likes it and to think that anyone else would like it at all much less 25 years after the fact like saying hey like i saw your band and it made me like play in this band i i don't know for me like i'm not fucking you know john joseph right like he has it way more in spades that kind of shit than i ever will but like because i was such a small flea on the ass of hardcore like it (laughs) blows my mind of people say shit like that you know it's a different time and it's cool to see that your uh, what you did in Memphis has some impact, and I know that it was kind of a, like you were kind of like, I don't care if I ever do this again. I'm only doing it because you know my brother can actually get it done. Yeah, and uh, I I think that the hardest thing that I look at when I when we talk about hardcore music today is the crazy difference in not only like the social, but in some of the like the physical presentation of this is hardcore. Like we were going to shows and everybody was like, either like us or they were like shirtless, mm-hmm. completely head to toe tattooed, ripped like monsters. And now it's like me and you are sitting here on the side of the stage. And I'm like, yo, you got to see this band. And they don't look anything like us, but then they will be like a super hard band. And we're like, when did all these weird little kids or like, you know, like, yeah. when all these weird skinny kids all find out, like become like in the hardest bands. You know? I, yeah, that, that is pretty surprising for me. Definitely. Aesthetics are a big part of hardcore, and I like that. You know, you always kept the designs for this hardcore c- coming, I would say, like, into a more contemporary verse, try to, like, be a throwback thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, you have to be, man. I mean, you, you can't... It can't be a throwback because there's something inherently, like, I don't know, sad about pining away for a, a, a time gone by. I mean... It rarely works in a sense of like financially speaking and also just spiritually how people feel about an event. Like I'll give you an example. Guns N' Roses came back and Slash is back in the band and it's like, oh, this is a throwback. But it was it was good. People that like that band, it was great. But for every one of those, there's five million bands that come back and like, oh, we're about to have our moment again and it just shits the bed. And that lends this sort of like idea to everyone that like throwing it back is kind of sad. So you can't ever like rely too much on like, you know, you hear some band like, oh, they're doing a reunion. 
who gives a fuck? No one liked him then. You know what I mean? And you got to kind of like steer around that shit. At this stage in the game, I think it's just incredible to watch like the little bits, like you're drawing stuff at this, at the first time we hung out looking at your house and like shit you're drawing in the, in the clench piss merch. Yeah. And here you are, you're literally like a graphic web professional, mm-hmm. you know, like, and it's all been on the drive and the want to not have to worry and pushing. It's just exciting because, you know, like, uh, I know you had a time when you were trying to be a tattooer mm, yeah. and then you're like, hey, fuck that. I'm going to go this route. And I think that the tattoo thing would have bogged you down. That would have might have held back some of the potential. I totally agree. I mean, for every every Damian Rodriguez, I know five hundred fuck faces that you know just kind of apply tattoos and that's it. You know, and I I don't I I don't know that I would. It's a guarantee that I would be as successful as Damian is, and. I don't like doing the same thing everyone I know does. I always like to be just slightly different. Um, you know, I'm not like purple mohawk ring in my nose different. I just mean like it almost becomes a cliche when you're my age and you come from the era that I do that you're going to be like a barber or a tattoo or whatever. And like one of my best friends owns a tattoo and barber shop. It's not to poo-poo the idea out of hand, but I'm just saying it's like you could, you could, you could mathematically guess, okay, this dude's 40 and he's been in hardcore this long. He might be one of these three things. And you'd be wrong in my case, but statistically, you, you, you would have a likelihood of being correct. And I don't like being that. Something that you always do is when we talk, you always impart like, well, this is what I'm up to now. And I, so I wanted you to do a couple like short things where it's like, give like two or three points of advice for people who are good with the design and now listen to your story, what would they have to do in your mind for them to go from just like doing a couple little things for bands to something more? Um, I'll say I'll take it away from just design people. I would say if you do anything and you can become good at it, um, it will put it this way. If you can find something to do that you don't hate and you can become good at that thing, it will solve most of your problems in life. And the hardest part of it is going to be learning that you don't need as much downtime as you think you do. You don't need to have it fun as much as you need to do. You do not need to even know what your passion is or follow it at all. I'm not passionate about websites. It's good enough. It satisfies me enough. Someone pays me to do it. When I'm not doing that, I'm laying under my car, working on my car. Yes, a couple days ago was my 40th birthday. I learned to weld on my 40th birthday. That's the kind of shit I do for fun. That's my passion. So what I would say is like, if you can be like Joe and get in a union and lay concrete, fucking do it. They make a lot of money. And you can still go to shows obviously you can book one of the biggest fests in the world and still be a union cement mason so like i would say the most important thing is to become terrified of not doing it what is the shitty end of not doing that thing that you can be good at or are good at and could be better at and get so scared of that that 
it's easy to work on it every day and get better at it. And then hopefully get a job doing it and then keep doing it and just do it until you're dead. I promise you it won't take as long as it feels like it will to start seeing it bear fruit. And the truth is a lot of people that get a job and they never are all that successful. They blame lots of things. My boss hates me. The economy's bad. That's almost never the truth. They're not trying hard enough. And if you can get your head wrapped around that and criticize yourself and be okay with going, I'm not doing enough. I need to do more. Like you'll be fine. Thinking about all that you learned, looking back now in retrospect, would you reply any regrets? And if so, what to with all the steps that you probably now wish you didn't have to take to get to where you know? Uh, they might be a little weird, but um, I'm still on the fence whether I would tell myself in the past to go to college. Like I mentioned, I would have professional connections that, that would serve me well now, but there's some other things I don't know that I really would care because I would have to learn everything I know anyway on my own. I would have graduated way before the internet is what it is now. So I had to learn all the shit I learned now, the way I learned it, even going to college. So I'm on the fence about that. But a couple things that I would tell myself, I would go back to myself, and I'm not really exactly sure what I'd say, but I repeat what I said a second ago. You don't need to be, you don't need to have that much fun. Meaning, you don't need to spend from 5 o'clock Friday to midnight Sunday just endlessly pursuing pleasure, you know, spend some time fit. Like when I say some time, like an hour every day, exploring something that can get you to another step. Even if that's, you just want to go from a white belt to a blue belt in jujitsu, for example, it doesn't always have to be a money making thing. It can be something just satisfying. I play guitar. I took guitar lessons 25 years after I was already playing a guitar because I wanted to be better. That's what I mean. Um, and this is the weird one. I wish I'd learned to skate skateboard back when, when I was a kid, I think it would have laid a ground to be, more physically active than I ever was until very recently. Very recently, I started exercising regularly every day, applying the same principles I do to my job to that, and it's made a huge difference. And it was a mental hurdle that I had to overcome that I don't think would be as high of a hurdle if I had got into skating, because I hate sports. And skate skating is like the punk sport, and I wish I had done that. You touched on the next thing I was going to bring up, which was guitar. And I know that you are really disciplined, like you had mentioned. Where did you start, or where would you have someone start, is a better way to say it, because it was already where you've been. Where would you have someone start if they were looking for some of these things that you picked up, whether it was like a Tim Ferriss podcast, or was websites you checked out, or was it Skillshare or one of them things? Like Okay, Um this is what I recommend. Go and buy the book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi and read it and just do what he says. Because a lot of my anxiety in my life, it actually served me well, but was kind of needless in a way, was panicking about what my future was and how was I going to afford this and that? How was I eventually going to retire someday or take care of my mom if she needed it? 
And what that book will explain to you is the shit rich people explain to their kids that they don't have to read a book to learn. They just know it. Things like investing for the long term. And what I mean by that is if you're 20 years old and you put just a little bit of money in an investment account, by the time you're 50, which is well before retirement age, it will be worth a significant amount of money. And it's little shit like that that the younger you are, the earlier you can start, even if you only got five bucks every couple weeks to do it, uh, will serve you in the long run. And you won't have to be on GoFundMe at 55 saying, you know, remember Bobby bitch tits? Like he used to go back to the shows. Remember him? I hope you remember him because now he needs a kidney and we didn't have any money. That's the that's a thing that you can do now to avoid, you know, uh, catastrophe in the future. Um, and on top of that, I have found in my own life, if I can dedicate an hour or two every day to doing a thing, I will get better at it very rapidly. And when I mean every day, I mean five days a week. If you can do it five days a week and take two days off, whether that's exercising, getting better guitar or whatever, you will get better at it. That's the kind of shit that like you learn in sports that a lot, you know, a lot of punk people don't like sports and don't get into it. And you miss out on this development in your life early on where you, you go, okay, well, I go to practice every fucking day and now I'm better. I went from seventh to eighth grade and now I'm fucking good at football or whatever, you know, um, just do that. I mean, and like I said, don't feel the need. I felt this a, a long time that I always had to be thinking about making money. But I don't think that's healthy. I think it can be a mix of what can I do on the side to make more money, but then like can I get better at guitar? This is an example. And cuz you'll get burned out trying to pursue money over everything. No, definitely. And I have friends that I feel have like aged themselves mentally. And falling into crazy bad habits because of the stress of chasing money without that hobby pursuit. And I know it's something that you really ingrained in like conversation with me, like, you know, the discipline of setting your day to day life up where you're working from home and you treat it like your real job and adding that little bit of, hey, this has nothing to do with the job. Mm-hmm. This, this, this thing's for me. And it's always been impressive to just every time to see you or talk to you. Um, about these things because you're ahead of the curve of a lot of our friends in that regard, obviously with the remote workplace and obviously with like the self-taught stuff. I mean, I don't know many people that have been able to kind of like go from like, well, fuck hardcore band. Is it going to work out? And it, I can't think about it as my only thing. It's time to be a grown up, you know, because I think sometimes when people do hardcore bands, like especially our age, what were, what were we going to stop? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. what were we, we were going to let nothing stop us. And then, you know, like, the ball was rolling with the band. So there was jobs, but there wasn't career, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, for me, construction stuff. And then, at some point, hey, this union thing, that's that's the sure bet. Yeah, right. It's always cool to see that you have kind of, like, made the right move. And you were ahead of us with a lot of stuff. Like, I remember me, I was kind of, like, transitioning it from – Shattered Realm and just stopped doing like anything from Europe and all that. And this hardcore became more solid. And this is when you start dropping all this, hey, SEO stuff. You built the big, the great fucking fast. And you mm-hmm. did all this, like all the art and background you're telling me. And I was like, 
how the hell did you learn this? And then when you told me the blueberry, you know, like you were constantly feeding your head and leveling up and leveling up and leveling up. But it wasn't, now think about it, it felt fast, but it was, like you said, every day, a year later, you got so much more in your yeah. arsenal. Yeah, it's a long process. You know, one thing I'll say, like, that you made me think of just now was that, you know, a lot of people in, in, in hardcore uh, are, you know, I, I mean, pretty much everyone is like idealistic in, in some way, very, or, you know, at least on some level. And so they have this notion that like going and making a good living or just to say a lot of money is like not being true to the spirit of hardcore. And I will say this, that what you said that had triggered this thought was that I told you about this X, Y, and Z thing. And so what I'm trying to say is the more you know, and the more money you make, the more you can help your friends, which is what hardcore is. So, like, example, like, I read this shit, I tell you about it. I tell my brother about it. Uh, I have friends that have GoFundMes, and, like, I can put more than $20 down because I have it. You know what I mean? It's because I took the time to make the money. So, what I'm saying is, like, you can look at it as, like, oh, I'm, you know, I have to be fucking Mr. Hardcore guy 24-7. Fuck that. I don't care. Like, okay, fine. But if you can pump the bricks just enough, you might be able to help out your friends when they need it or sh show them the way. And, like, that's that's a huge – it feels good to do that shit. It makes it worth it to do that, to do all the stuff that I've done. Um, there are some – material things that i love having but they're not they don't they don't sh you know move the needle uh emotionally as much as being able to help people i care about it's always something that sticks with me is that the thing that we do and why we do it is because on one hand we've always done it so there's like the extra like well what else i mean like you're not going to stop listening to Madball and only do golf <laughs> you know, like yeah. this is not in, it's who we are. Right. And so it does follow us, you know, like at some point I imagine someone else will be doing shows and I'll just get to show up and be like, good thing I don't have to stress about this, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. but at the same time is, you know, um, this is what we do and this is what I do. I, I But I pour concrete and do those things so that way the show doesn't have to make sure food's on my table. Right. And it's allowed me to have a better perspective without that stress well it's you know? a good point because i don't have to design band merch for bands i don't like because i don't need the money you know i don't i when i do that it's it's fun and nothing else and that's nice you have to you have to care and when you have it when you don't have to stress it you don't have to worry about working disingenuously yeah exactly you, know, like, you don't uh, have to do things just for the money which is always gonna throw like some you know some shittiness into the mix i like for my instance it'd be like holding like the calendar of a club means having to book so many different kind of bands mm -hmm. but i wouldn't be excited on it. and I, I wouldn't be able to follow through right and it would just it i would be terrible at that job even though it probably would pay way more. That's would. that's why I said you don't need to follow your passion. Let your <laughs> passion be the shit that is fun and do something else, you know, during the day. And and then, like, you get to utilize your passion for shit you actually care about. You're not u utilizing your passion for, like, some shitty death metal band that you don't give a fuck about.
Yeah, I think about that, and it's like I like doing concrete because of the physicality of the chaos of it. But yeah. in regards to it, I like that. You know, two years ago we got flown to Leeds to play a show in Hall instead of being like, "Well, I was at my kid's christening, and then went to my aunt's this and like you know the Family Guy mm-hmm. on the job that's got like goes to every weekend. He comes in, he's like, "Oh, we're at this birthday party, like." That ain't me, man. And then it's like, I'm not the Eagles guy. I'm not a golf guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I same. Like, I, you know, so having a passion like hardcore, it permeates your day. It makes it better. Is it? And, and I don't, I don't think I would trade that. I would much rather have it as my release and something great. You know, like uh, at Sunday night, two in the morning, and Jimmy Murphy's Law is drunk, hugging you, be like, I love you, and mm-hmm. all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And two days later, you're back to your thing. Yeah. You know, like, there's not a real way to put a passion on getting hugged by Jimmy Murphy's Law. We know it's great. But, like, because of your passion, you're hanging out with a guy that, like, we grew up being like, holy shit, it's Murphy's Law. Yeah. And then I, you go back to computer world and you're not worried about that, but that's still in your life. But you it's, know? it's a nice little secret club in a way. And what I mean is, like, I would not, like, I have a Murphy's Law tattoo. I love Murphy's Law. And what Joe's referencing was. Just by this weird happenstance, I was after the fest one year. I was hanging out with Jimmy Murphy's Law and just for a long time. And and I don't tell people at work like, yeah, I hung out with one of my heroes. It was like, who's your hero? You know, LeBron James. Like, I don't even care. I wouldn't fucking <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't even piss know on that dude if he was on fire. I, you know? I don't even know. Well, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know what LeBron James looks. <laughs> yeah, right. So like, you know, I like being able to go back to my normal life and I've got this like secret shit that they don't know about. Like they don't know anything about it. Um, you know, it's just nice to have, keep this little secret, you know, it's like being in a, uh, like the, you know, what the hell's that club that Homer's in on the Simpsons, the, the stone cutters or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, it's kind of like that in a way. Looking back on your time in hardcore, what do you think your favorite, other thing you did or like window of time was it for you before you transitioned into like full work motivated go 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 mode oh i would say probably the most important moment like i i don't know about a time frame because like that's too hard for me to define but i remember the first time i made my first zine like i walked to kinko's and copied it uh back in the day you used to have to go up to the counter you would get a card you put it in the machine you'd make your copies and you go take the card to the cop to the counter and they go okay you made 300 copies that'll be whatever amount of money so what we would do is two of us would go in there one would get a card the other one would get a card i'd make five billion copies for the zine the other guy would make 10 copies we'd throw one card under the you know under the machine go pay for the one the first time I did that, walked out with a stack of zines that literally no one in my local environment would give a fuck about reading, but it still felt like the craziest fucking thing to me. Like, I did it. Like, I'm holding in my hand, like, you know, this thing I made about this stuff that, like, is so crazy to me. That was probably, even putting out my first record wasn't as big a deal as that. No, I think creating stuff and having it like it's always gonna it's always gonna be more important to do cool shit and make cool shit than for me to see cool shit because I, mean, I yeah. saw a lot of cool shit but like 
I like to make the shit that people think is cool. Not by being on the stage so much as making sure that voyeur moment and that like interaction over everybody else. That's like my kick. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it's for that moment for me, it was like, I like making stuff, uh, you know, physically put my hands. So it was that, but it's also like, I like breaking the rules a little bit. And it was like, I got to, you know, scam the Kinkos. And it's just like a good little kind of mix of things that I enjoy. It just came together and it was a big deal. Now, obviously for all the reasons I don't have to ask, like what keeps you still in hardcore, but what right now, thinking about it like what's the most modern what's the most modern thing in hardcore now that got you that's got you excited about anything the most modern thing in hardcore just say like what's good about now if if not a modern thing like a band or a record but like you know what's what's great about right now you know i like knowing um I don't know. It's kind of counterproductive to what I said. I liked about the old days of being able to discover thing and this discover bands in this unique way. I like going to the fest and knowing that like I've looked up some of these bands and like some of them I don't care about, and that's when I'm going to be in the alleyway drinking beer. (laughs) You know, like uh, part of me is like, well, if I literally cannot get to watch Madball do 20 years to set it off, which I couldn't because there were too many people on stage and the room was too packed, Sunny filmed there, I can watch it <laughs> when I go home. You know, that like modern stuff is just all convenience for me. It's like, I know it's you're supposed to go in early and watch the early bands because that's the right thing to do. But, you know, I put in my time. Just tell me if they're shitty or not before I get to the show. And I can find that out now. I love that. <laughs> I could, it wouldn't be an interview with you if I didn't bring it up. There is a there's a secret world, but it's not that secret, which was the back street of the fest. Mm-hmm. But before it was the back street of the fest, it was like this shitty bad back lot with like remember the one year it was just a um we had a billboard that Cracker stole mm-hmm. and we stretched it from the roof to the top of the Shattered Realm band. Yeah, can you give us because we're almost done with this? Can you give us some uh, great moments in this is hardcore chaos that wasn't me and you running around like maniacs all weekend I mean, just like the settings of what was going on i mean it's just like kind of the unseen part of of this is hardcore that's always there to, but just like you know if you buy a ticket and go and you're moshing like you may not even be aware but like joe knows five million people and at least four million of them come to the fest <laughs> <laughs> and and are are not backstage they're in the alleyway behind the electric factory and and it's like kind of like this fucked up class reunion but like not one class is like you know let's say a high school had a reunion for 10 years of people so there's people back there like 55 years old and then guys that are like the younger brother of a dude that's 35 and he's like 20 so it's like this huge age range and millions of beers and lawn chairs and it's just like it's just chaos the the city blocks off the alleyway so cars don't come down until late at night and then ubers and taxis run around and there's people screaming at them and (laughs) and, definitely for fun with that cab yeah i mean it's just it's just crazy I, i mean it's just like 
it starts off earlier in the day, like, you know, just kind of calm and hanging out. But, like, at some point, it becomes complete lunacy. And I have been the middle of the lunacy before. Like, <laughs> one year, so a buddy of mine and myself were like, man, there was a girl that we wanted to drink with us. And we were like, we got to go find some Jameson. And we walked, I mean, I don't know, hours this is before I moved to Philly and I didn't really know where I was going. And we got this bottle of Jameson, like the size of a small kid. And, <laughs> and we bring it back to the fest. And long story short, we never got the girl to drink with us. We started sharing it with a bunch of dudes that we know, right? Passing it around. <laughs> and my buddy runs off at some point to share this big ass bottle with somebody. And I'm, I'm pretty hammered at this point. And I'm like, where the fuck is my Jameson? Your wife told me this story because I don't remember any of this. <laughs> uh, I'm like, where the fuck is my Jameson? And Ray, P.A. Ray, that's the on best. that's on uh, the Post-America podcast pretty often, he shows up and puts this bottle of Hennessy in my face, a brand new bottle. And apparently what I decided to do was crack that bottle open and just chug it like it was saving my life. <laughs> now, Hennessy is... I, I guess I'm allergic to it or something. And I don't remember anything except the next day I was staying in a hotel with, uh, with my buddy Dom that got the Jameson with me and my buddy Max, who was in the band cold cave. And he, that night had to fly to Canada to play a show. And he came back and I woke up the next morning. Um, not really knowing how I got into the bed. And I woke up and went to the bathroom, and my face was just like scraped. I thought I thought I got beat up. I was like, "Oh my god, what the fuck did I do?" Um, apparently, after I drank that Hennessy bottle, I was doing some crazy shit, screaming and hollering. And I fell down, and the alleyway has this like two and a half foot rock wall that everyone sits <laughs> on. Well, I, I guess my face met that wall somehow. Jesus. <laughs> and uh, John Malcolm. And Dom took me back to the hotel. It carried me like Vietnam wounded warrior style into some vehicle, got me there. I pissed in Max's bed, but not my own bed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I also peed all over the bathroom because I couldn't stand up straight. And uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was a one-time only event. But yeah, that's how fucking stupid and crazy it can get back there. The last time we were in a hotel all together, um, <laughs> Joel came into my hotel room with his brother at like one thirty in the morning, being like, "We need to get some goddamn hangers." No, that was me and Don. I'll tell oh, you that. Me and Don. I thought your brother was there. So, what started as me coming to Philly every year by myself to come to the fest eventually morphed into me bringing like half a dozen yeah, guys was, from Memphis. <laughs> the whole Memphis gang was up. Yeah, so we're all we're all there. And I think it was Friday night of the fest. Um, yeah, it was a Friday night. So all the Memphis guys, after the show, they all make it back to a hotel room. So Joe had a room, I had a room, and then all my idiot friends had their own room because I'm not staying in a room with them. And Joe and I left after the show, and we went somewhere. I don't remember where we went, but we got back later than they did. And we get back, and they had ordered my guys had ordered all these pizzas and eaten them i'm like what the fuck man y'all didn't fucking save me any pizzas 
and Jay yeah. is is like my stepson. They told me he ate two whole pizzas by himself. So I'm like, man, fucking fuck Jay. And I said, I need to order a pizza. So we go down to their room to order the pizza because they had the box with the number on it. We get in there and call order the pizza. And I'm sitting there looking at Jay, and he's laying face down on the floor, all satisfied, asleep, with his full <laughs> belly. The full belly of pizza. And I'm, like, just irritated. And so it's me, Dom, and our other buddy. And I'm like, we, I take my, my laminate, my backstage pass, whatever you want to call it, off. And I hold it by the pass. And I take the string, and I'm like, I'm going to whip Jay's ass. And he's covered in blankets and shit but his feet are sticking out so i pull his socks off and then me and dom are full-fledged whipping his feet like as hard as we can so he jumps up and he's all pissed off and he looks at dom like he's ready to fight and he looks at dom like i can't beat dom and he's like who's this other guy looks at me he's like oh god i definitely can't beat him (laughs) he looks at our buddy brent who's filming it and laughing and he's like, I think I can take him. And he picks up the trash can. And Jay is from this neighborhood in Memphis called the Hills, but they call it the Hells. And Jay is white, but he grew up around only blacks. So he's got a very black voice. And he picks up the trash can and throws it at Brent's head, bounces him. I'm from, <laughs> and fucking <laughs> shoves him down. And Brent's leg breaks during this process. And I'm like, oh, what the fuck? Right at this moment, I get a phone call. Mr. Murphy, your pizza's here. Whoop, I'm out of here. Fucking, <laughs> I step over them. They're fighting, and, and, and me and Dom go to the lobby. It's not our pizza. someone else's pizza. We have to wait forever. We get this pizza. I'm like, I haven't eaten all day, neither is Joe. Let me go see if Joe wants some of this pizza. That's when we showed up yeah. in the hotel room. And we're like, you want some of this pizza? And we're telling you, yeah, we were whipping Jay, and they started fighting all laughing and shit. And you're like, hey, I got these wooden hangers. <laughs> you, you, you want these wooden hangers? Uh, right, I told you. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they had this like straight, thick piece that you, it was like removable somehow. And he's like, you want these hangers? Like, yeah, we're gonna go back there and beat the fuck out of Jay. So we get back to our, their hotel room, walk in the door. Jay is passed out face first on the carpet like he had been <laughs> murdered. And Brent is laying in the bed in the fetal position, and his leg is bent like a cooked hot dog. <laughs> and he's going, man, it's broken. It, it hurts so bad. And I looked at him. I said, no, nah, it didn't look broken to me. And I, I'm like, I'm out of here. <laughs> and I started to, like, book it back to the elevator, go back to my room. Dom comes running down the hallway after me. He's like, man, man, his leg's fucking broken for real, man. We got to take him to the hospital. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> So I go we go back to the room. We get him out of the bed. We're carrying him again like he's been wounded in a war. We get him in the elevator. Get him down like, Dom, go get a luggage cart. <laughs> we put him on a luggage cart. We wheel him back up to the front desk. I'm telling the guy, can you call me a cab? He's like, okay. Cab driver shows up. By this time, Brent's going, he just keeps repeating, hurt so bad. <laughs> hurt so bad. And he's starting to yell it. He's like, hurt so bad. And... The cab shows up, and he's like, he's having a heart attack. He's not getting in my cab. I was like, God damn it, you're taking us to the hospital. Get in that fucking car. <laughs> shove everybody in the car. Take him to the hospital. Brent is a mega partier, and when they tried to sedate him to set his leg, none of it worked. <laughs> 
none of the shit they gave him like calmed it down. Like, I don't know what they did because we just. I asked the nurse like, "You guys got him? Like, we? I'm thirsty. I'm like hungover at this point. I'm. I, yeah, it's I the next day. Do. It's literally. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, like bleeding way into the. So we we asked the security guard in the emergency room. Man, is there like a wawa around here? We can get something. He's like, "Yeah, go down here." Dude, we walked for forty days and forty nights, <laughs> like. We finally got to the Seven Eleven that's over like near that. What is that thing with a Billy Pin thing? Yeah, is? yeah, yeah. That Seven Eleven. Yeah, we finally, yeah, we finally made race. it over there and just sat there defeated, drinking our waters, just like we had just had our asses beat. And dude, it was just fucked up. We had to go get a medicine, pick him up in the morning. It was just total, <laughs> just chaos. And you guys still were at the fast building table, you know, moving tables around, taking down tents. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> didn't, none of it stopped, you know? No, that's the thing. It's like, people are like, oh, 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 that's showing my kid. What's he doing for the best? I'm like, well, he designs the art, all that stuff. But then, dude, <laughs> there's been so much crazy shit yeah. that we've had to do over the years. Just, I mean, from building the first tents and just like all the stuff. It's just amazing that you come up every year and, uh, I appreciate the stories because they just crack me up. But it's like, you know, maybe other civilized humans would just like, maybe they get a couple beers, they might go to, you know, eat with their friends and go to sleep. Yeah, they no. might throw up out of the car on the way home. But <laughs> yeah. Like, that's that's about it. If if someone wants to look you up on the Instagram and stuff and hit you up about things, where would they do that? Or do you not want to tell anybody? Um, Yeah, uh, my Instagram is juice underscore main, M-A-Y-N-E. Um. I don't know if you want to follow me. I don't post very much, but there I be. Um, if we're friends, I'll do a shirt. If we're not, uh, no thank you. You get a little more active on the Twitter, I saw. I, I, I have a thought or two to share here and there. Um, that's about it. I just prolifically tag Joel and stuff, so eventually down the line you'll see his name. Um, Joel, we've been friends for a long time, and... You did so much stuff already with helping me with the podcast, like making the page so that way I physically can't fuck up posting the stuff for the podcast and um, with the TIHCpodcast.com. It's all stuff that you do, and um, Joel is available if you really want someone to design website crap. Not crap, but websites and help you out. And uh, as far as people go, I've got friends who went to college for this stuff that don't make as much as Joel does. A lot more fucking miserable and probably a little bit more nerdy. And he's an inspiration in that how much he taught himself and how much he is his own motivator and he is his like litmus of success. And it is the true embodiment of the DIY in him from the very earliest stages and that resourcefulness from living away from, you know, a Mecca of hardcore, so to speak, that pushed you to do this. And I just really am happy that you shared your story and kind of gave some people some advice and words to try out. Yeah. And, uh, I'll say this, if you're a young dumbass like I was and you need help not being that, like, take those steps that I mentioned earlier. And if you do that and you need some more advice, like if you can get past that first hurdle let me know, I'll, I can tell you what to do next. Now, Joel, thank you. This is awesome. This is the second time I've ever recorded someone in person. It's pretty cool. My dog was in between us the whole time on my couch. <laughs> um, just Joel, Joel, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Like I said, this episode had so many great laughs. Only juicy Joel, could provide so much entertainment and education at the same time. 
can't speak enough high high things about him. One of the most intuitive people, genuinely his own person, not somebody who's willing to follow the pack. And this has been the same guy for 20 years, and my life has been better because of him. His distinct outlook on artwork and design has given This Is Hardcore an incredible look that I think stands out amongst a lot of hardcore punk festivals. And as you heard in some of these stories, this is my ride or die. This is the guy who comes two, three days early, stays up all night, gets up early, does all the crazy running around, was there when I bought the big fish net that I'd eventually use to catch people on stage, there through all the hijinks, there to support me at my highs, there to sit with me through some of my lows. And I really can't tell you enough about how good of a person he was. And I'm just so happy that I got to have a conversation with him in person because this is the juice that I know. A lot of people know Joe. He might have a couple words to say. He's a insulated person and he's not grim or he's not too quiet, but he's reserved. So this was him at his finest. This is him telling the stories. And honestly, it was so awesome to see him sitting there on a couch hanging with my dog as we had this story. And I just it was a blessing. And I hope that you guys enjoyed this as much as I did just doing it. Next week's guest is the one, the only, Scott Vogel from Terror. We take some turns with this where we do not go in the same path that we normally take in a guest. And I had a completely different idea about how I was going to start the conversation. But the minute we started speaking, I had a flash of idea on where else we can go, and it went that way. I don't conduct these like 90 zines interviews where I write uh, questions out and just ask them. This is completely about a flow-up conversation, which is why I, I don't really consider them interviews. They're definitely just conversations, and I hope that next week, as you're celebrating the holiday, you are able to enjoy Scott. He talks for about three hours, and being someone that I not only am inspired by and have worked with for over 20 years... He sheds light on a lot of things that maybe not come up in your typical Scott Vogel interview. So, can't wait for next week. Hope you guys have a great time with this one. Again, contact us on social media. Rate, review us on the iTunes stuff. Please reshare and post. If you like episodes, tell your friends. Thank you so much. T-I-H-C-Podcast.com.